everybody it's mike and this is episode five of you don't know history and today we're going to talk about probably one of the more well-known uh fighting formations on the planet the french foreign legion and joining me today is bird watcher extraordinaire and <laughs> how are you man i'm doing good that's the the <laughs> first time i've been um introduced as a bird watcher um <laughs> I can't remember what Joe Kasabian introduced me as, but it wasn't as polite. <laughs> well, I mean, it's Joe. What do you expect? Yeah. Um, so, yes, we're going to talk French Foreign Legion today. Uh, 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 you know, a unit that you are a member of. Yeah. Uh, but we're go- we're going to hop in the way back machine and head over to 1830 uh, yep. when we typically have the uh, Legion's birthday. You know. Uh, so why why was the Foreign Legion started? Well, I mean, first of all, you've got to go back, kind of way back to um, pre-revolutionary France. Okay. Um, and you back in kind of pre-Napoleon the first, you had twenty five percent of the French army was foreign, and mostly mostly Swiss. So, you know, you had. You had a kind of a basis there. I mean, you had foreign units in other armies and stuff like that, but you know the French had a, a reasonably big chunk compared to other countries. Um, and it, in seven, a lot of that kind of dissipated a little bit over time. Then in 1792, you had the the Austrian invasion of um, of France, um, and they, at that stage they'd gotten rid of quite a lot of the foreigners. Um, they'd gotten rid of a lot of the Swiss and stuff like that. And what they what happened was when the Austrians invaded, um, the French militia pretty much broke and ran because there wasn't a there wasn't a firm basis of troops there. So that was April 1792. By September, there was 4,000 um, Swiss mercenaries had been recalled. You had Dutch and Belgians and Germans who also were recruited who were coming in from different areas of, of Europe, from different conflicts and stuff like that, and they'd ended up in, in France. So you, you had that, um, that microcosm of foreign troops already in France. They just, they were parts of the Hohenlohe uh, the, the Regiment. Um, there were parts of, you know, different sp- uh, Swiss units. There were, there were kind of, you had the the Legion Germanique, and you had the what was known as the the Legion Fran- uh, Franche Etranger, which was Dutch and Belgians for the most part. Um, so that kind of went on. Then you had Napoleon arrived, and then Napoleon had recruited quite a large amount of Irish, because you had the the flight of the earls from uh, from Ireland. Um, they ended oh, yeah. up as refugees in France. Yeah, strong, uh, strong military, like cro- kind of cross culture between Ireland exactly, and France. Yeah, and yeah. you know, you had you had the, I mean, the the Irish became extremely entrenched in French military history, um, to the point where you had the the first official flag 
of the of the Foreign Legion um, was awarded to General McMahon, who was the son of, or sorry, I think he was the grandson of uh, one of the earls who had arrived and fought under Napoleon. Okay. So you you had that big Irish connection, which was something for me and some of the other Irish guys that were there. So you had Napoleon had that, then that kind of went away with the um, after he after he was defeated at Waterloo. And then you had the, the Bourbon restoration that came along. Um, because of Napoleon's campaigns, um, France had suffered, uh, the French army had suffered a huge amount of casualties. Uh, its birth rates were gone really, were had gone really low. And by the time Charles X took power, he had six Swiss regiments plus the Hohenlohe regiment, um, basically keeping him in power. And they were... They were very unpopular with the rest of the French army and they were very unpopular with the with the French population because with the French army, they were, uh, I think they were paid something like six times more than a French soldier. Okay. Um, so there was that jealousy going on and then there was the whole, they were keeping um, a despotic fucking monarch in place. Um, so the, the local population didn't, didn't really like him um, or didn't really like him. Yeah, I mean, the, so the French by this point have a strong, uh, uh, essentially strong uh, military history of having non-French citizens as members yeah. of the armed forces. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, you, you come along and you have um, Charles X is deposed. Uh, Louis-Philippe Bourbon takes, uh, takes power. Um, and at that point, you know, you've got... A, a small French army, but you've got lots and lots of foreigners in the country. And a lot of these foreigners had actually taken part in protests and riots and actions against Charles X. So, um, uh, Louis-Philippe uh, had appointed one of Napoleon's um, loyal officers uh, from the time, Marshal Soult, as his Minister of Defence. Um and he came up with an idea that we really need to take care of these foreigners coming in that because they're causing a lot of shit and we really need to kind of deal with them. So his idea was that they create a, a foreign legion, um, push all these guys into it. Um, as he, he termed it, it was a destination for foreigners who might cause trouble in France. So is anybody who could, you know, it was, well, not anybody, but, you know, it, it could have been anybody who was, uh, you know, fighting against or you know, agitating against the Bourbons. Exactly. Uh, well, Charles, because uh, yeah. Louis, Louis Philippe, I, if I remember correctly, was installed on a more uh, parliamentary monarchy. Type it was, it was, right? it was basically the, the bourgeoisie in France who decided that he was a good deal. Okay. Um, he was from them. And they could appeal to him and appeal to, you know, because he he was one of them. So they installed him. But you still had, like, you still had, you know, all these foreigners who were coming in and kind of rambling around the country. And rather than see them cause trouble, they kind of wanted to corral them and, you know, kind of create a space for them where they could uh, exert some kind of control over them. So in... Uh, 9th of March, uh, 1830, they create the 
Louis, uh, Louis Philippe gives an order to create the, uh, the Legion. And on the 18th of March, he barred all Frenchmen and married men from joining it. Um, because they had a bit of an influx of Frenchmen who wanted to join it, basically because we're poor. Yeah. We have military experience. And it was a lot of these distants coming in were, were ex-military as well from different conflicts. So they had combat experience. Um, so you had all these French guys who wanted to who wanted to join, who were ex-soldiers. They saw it as a chance of making a bit of money. They were fucking starving at the time. But then Louis-Philippe wanted to keep them out. So he barred them and he barred married men. And there's, like to this day in the Legion, you can't be married when you enlist. Um, you have to wait seven years for, uh, to apply for permission to get married. At which point they generally tell you to fuck off. Yeah, I mean, that, that probably would be a smart uh, thing for a lot of countries to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> they stop E4s marrying strippers and, um, yeah. and buying Mustangs. Yeah, I mean, that would, that would be good. Uh, actually, that would, it would have saved me a lot of headaches when I was still in. Uh, yeah. But, but this, was, this was also the time when they, they put in the, essentially the, the rule that these legionnaires could not serve within France, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. They, were, they were designed to... Or they were created with the express reason of serving overseas. Yeah, it, it was supposed to, it was like a, I don't want to say do it on the cheap because you and I both know that standing up any kind of military force isn't cheap, uh, yeah. but it was supposed to be a, a colonial kind of uh, occupation type force that didn't involve uh, France sending their front, you know, their, their citizens overseas. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think it was, um, and this is, kind of been echoed even when I was in in the, the late 80s, early 90s was that France would use the Legion first on overseas expeditions or adventures um, because no one cared about a foreigner dying, whereas there would be trouble over seeing French citizens getting killed in these places. So, yeah. you know, there was that dual part of it. Um, and, you know, at that point, you know, the first Legion was basically... 1200 legionnaires legionnaires um under the command of a swiss colonel called stoffel and he he had he wasn't the most popular um <laughs> as colonels rarely are as colonels uh, rarely are um <laughs> he actually wasn't he wasn't really popular with his battalion commanders um and some say it was kind of a jealousy that they wanted his job. Others kind of was that he was incompetent and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, so it's kind of depending on what you read. Yeah. It, it depends on what you'll hear. So, you know, you've got that and then kind of that rolls on to, you know, pre uh, Louis Philippe, there'd been an issue between France and the ruler of Algiers. Um, which went back to a debt that France was seen to still owe him. And during a meeting between the, the French envoy in Algiers and uh, the Day Hussein, uh, the Day Hussein reminded him of, you know, the fact that he still owed them money. Um, and the French envoy kind of replied kind of discourteously. And for that, he got a, a smack of a fly whip in the face. And um, and this was seen as an official insult to France. 
So oh. it was it was an excuse in a way to kind of cancel the debt, which Napoleon kind of during Napoleon's time it it was he had no intention of paying anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a kind of fuck those guys, um, and it was an excuse to start um, kind of gathering the first French colonies. Um, kind of overseas and Algeria wasn't that far so it was going to be easy to kind of get to um and then you know they they invaded North Africa um during you know which they they took from the kind of Algeria wasn't a country in itself or it wasn't a it wasn't a colony of the of the Turks it was kind of ruled over by six different uh, days and they, the French progressively entered and took over each one of these areas, but you know Algiers was kind of the first one. Um, yeah, and that that had, that needs to be said. That was a big part of Ottoman. Uh, you know, we're we're dealing with the sick man of Europe by this point. You know, like yeah. the, the Ottoman Empire slowly imploding. You have yeah. uh, various. They could have been, you know, like you said, uh, bays or or whatever other titles they had, but they were yeah. carving out their own little areas within the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. Um, so you saw little bits and pieces falling to the various European, you know, colonial uh, expeditions. Yeah, I mean, you had, I mean, it, you know, you had in, you had right down, right out down into Sudan, into the early 1800s. You had, you know, you had the, the Pashas and stuff like that who were, you know, who were there with, you know, who were fighting there and actually ended up, I think um, they launched expeditions with the, with the British into southern Sudan and so Yeah. So they were all over the place. It was kind of a disintegrating empire, like you said. Um, and it was really these kind of the, the sultan's way of kind of never having someone establish a, a strong point that could oppose him and declare independence. So, you know, Algeria had, was split into six provinces, six leaders, um, and who were all kind of set against each other anyway. So there wasn't a... a there wasn't a, coal, a, a kind of a coalition that could be formed. Yeah. And, you know, that was the Sultan's plan, but it worked against them when the French invaded because, you know, if they weren't fighting the French, they wouldn't end up fighting each other. So is this where, like, the the kind of connection between Algeria and the, the Legion started? Yeah, this this is where it started because the, the Legion was housed, was housed about 350 kilometers at the time outside of Paris. Uh, and they were causing a lot of trouble. Which <laughs> Legion regiments in French towns these days, well, when I was in, um, kind of caused a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the guys get drunk, they go downtown, they, they fuck up. So the, um, the French decided, well, these guys were never supposed to be in France in the first place. Let's get them the fuck over to North Africa and they can go and pick fights over there. Yeah. And that's when in November 1832... They marched them off to Toulon. Um, remarkably, it's been commented that there was hardly any desertions on the way um, because the legionnaires seemed to seem to be of the mindset that it was better heading off to somewhere in North Africa where you didn't know what the fuck was going to happen to you or you could desert and live penniless, workless and starve to death in France. Yeah. So... They headed off to North Africa, and that's where they they started campaigning, kind of from there on, pacifying the country and taking up bigger and bigger chunks of it for France. 
Yeah, I mean, they got pretty busy after 1832 because yeah. they were they were sent to Spain uh, to support uh, Isabella. Yeah, uh, you know, um, they you know by you know, it, I think what really surprised me about reading up on that is they, uh, you know, the Legion kind of they got wore out in Spain. Um, oh yeah, was, yeah, yeah, it was rough fighting, um, and they ended up essentially, uh, you know, the they were given to Spain, if I'm remembering yeah. correctly. Yeah, and, um, they, the prime minister at the time, Adolf Tears, and, and no one named Adolf should be fucking trusted. Um, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted France to retake her place kind of as a, as a global power. And he wanted, you know, he was looking at Spain. Um, the king, Fernando, had died... There, there was a power struggle between Isabella and Don Carlos, his two kids. Um, the British and the, and the Portuguese were kind of supporting Don Carlos. Uh, France decided to throw its weight in behind Isabella. Uh, because, um, of course, France did. Um. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Do fucking the opposite of fucking everybody else. Yes, yes. Uh, whatever, whatever you do, we want to be a world power, but we're going to piss off everybody else in the meantime, you know? Exactly. <laughs> so, but they, he, he had an idea was that he want again, he wanted to do like all French politicians, they want to fucking do it on the cheap. Yeah. Um, so the deal they cut with Isabella was that he would give them the legion, and this was against everybody's advice. Um, and Stolt had said, no, do not get involved in Spain. Tears decided he wanted to get in there. So they cut a deal with Isabella that they would give her the Legion, but she would have to pay for it. Okay. So, and then they ended up, and they weren't the best equipped force at the time. You know, they were, they were pretty, pretty raggedy ass when they arrived. Uh, I think they'd been on the way. There'd been a cholera epidemic, so they were quarantined before ever arriving in France. Then they arrive in France, and you know, from kind of day one, it's just a shit show. Yeah. Um, well, and, I mean, I think throughout history we learned that any kind of fighting, you know, in the in yeah. the internal politics of Spain, always ends up bad. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Anyone, anyone who gets dragged into a conflict in Spain, it's just. You know, it's not going to end well. Um, so, you know, that's they're, they're in Spain. Um, they get involved in kind of fighting against... Funnily enough, the, the whole Legion arriving in Spain sparked off a, a Catholic church um, kind of um, propaganda move against, uh, against Isabella. Um, and they uh, they told them because they didn't want they saw that they were going to get paid they were going to be charged taxes to fund Isabella's yeah. war, um, so they told everyone that the the Legion were revolutionary atheists. So fucking rock on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, and the thing is, you got to think at the time, that's like that's almost impossible to do because you still. It, you still had people. They could have been the worst scum of the earth type people. Yeah, they were still going to you know claiming Christian, you know that they were Christians or Catholics or whatever yeah. the sect they were. You know, like that's like one of the most ridiculous things you could think about in the 1830s. You know, like yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know. If you want to call me out on it now, okay, all right, yeah, fine. <laughs> but you know, in the 1830s, come on, man. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
They, you know, but they, you know, they were the Catholic Church is never ending fucking mission to declare everyone as a godless communist. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, at least the Pope now doesn't seem like a bad guy. Um, no, no. You know, he, he's liking thirst traps on Instagram. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the, the Legion has a bad time in Spain and they essentially yeah. kind of disintegrate. Um, it, they do. Um, I mean, they. By the time they got out of Spain in 1859, they'd been reduced to uh, 63 officers and 160 men. Yeah, and that that um, became kind of the cadre for the next iteration yeah. of the Legion, right? Um, yeah. Well, there was there was still um, Legion regiments in Algeria. Well, Legion units in uh, in yeah. Algeria at the time. Um, I think in and they and there was still recruiting going on in France because you still had shit going on in the rest of Europe and yeah. stuff like that. And you know the the funny thing was that while they were recruiting in in Europe, and I think they recruited a a lot of Dutch and Dutch and Belgians, um, they were shipped to North Africa to reinforce uh, what was becoming known. Or what the reinforced the legion who were there, as part of what was becoming known as the the army of Africa, yeah. Um, and you know this was in kind of the while the legion was being battered all over Spain and in you know outnumbered and outgunned in uh, in a conflict that where they needed reinforcement but they weren't getting them. So you know you you had. You had this core by by the time they got across into into France in eighteen fifty nine, you now had a hard core of battle tested uh, soldiers. Even though they'd been beaten, you know they they put in the hard yards and they they knew yeah. how to get they knew how to handle themselves in a fight. Yeah, I mean experience so, is key, um, especially yeah. when you got to think we're we're heading into the next probably big deployment uh, outside of northern Africa of the yeah. Legion. They were sent to Crimea. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. Crimea was uh, one of those horrible great game conflicts where the UK and the French and uh, the Sardinians were like, well, we couldn't, we can't let the Ottomans fall uh, from being pushed around by Russia. So yeah. let's all just go to war together against yeah. them and it'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was a, a kind of a <laughs> typical, typical French thing is that Oh yeah, well, you know, we're in a fight with the Turks. Uh, oh wait, the Russians are trying to expand across the Black Sea, and they'll gain access to the Medi their fleet will gain access to the Mediterranean. They were already scared of them of what was going on in the Baltic states and in the in the Baltic Sea, and they went, oh wait, Turks, not so bad right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and when you look deeper into it, it was all about debt as well. The UK yeah. and uh, and the French went there. You know, they went there to, oh, well, there's a, there's a money-making opportunity here. Yeah. So let's take advantage of it. Um, and, you know, even from the beginning of that conflict, you could see that nobody really knew what the hell they were doing. Um, you know, I mean, you had uh, high casualty rates, not just yeah. from actual conflict, but, uh, you know, to disease. You know, we, yeah. that knocked out a ton of people. Um, did, yeah, weather as well, because they went there ill-equipped. Yes, they were really equipped for the the heat in the summer, and then of course when they stripped down all their gear, um, 
next thing the winter hit and you know they pretty much froze to death um so you had a, a whole you know shit show going on there yeah you think, really you think we would have learned about napoleon you know from napoleon's jaunt into yeah. russia like come on man uh yeah. <laughs> you have to have warm clothes in the winter uh <laughs> and the ability to supply them as needed and nobody had it uh yeah you know yeah well napoleon the third didn't really learn from napoleon the first yeah well well, we'll come to find out just how big of an idiot he is. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, but, but you know they were also deployed into into Italy. Um, yeah, you know well, to, to fight all, Austria, right? First of all, the one the one good one about um, the one good story about Sevastopol, where you had the uh, where the raw kind of positioned in in the Crimea. Have you heard the the infamous story of uh, Queen Victoria's mascot? No, no. Okay. Well, <laughs> Queen Victoria gave a goat, a big billy goat, to the Welsh Fusiliers, which two drunken legionnaires poisoned. Um, because <laughs> why not? Ever. Yeah. It's, it's what legionnaires do to goats, apparently, when they get drunk and bored. <laughs> um, and then it ended up being returned to the Welsh, who. Um, who buried it with full regimental honours. Um, and then the legionnaires went back, dug it up, skinned it, and turned it into a coat, which they then, <laughs> which, which they then sold back to the Welsh for £20 at the time, which was a small fortune. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, that's, uh, that's called capitalism, folks. Exactly. Uh, all right, that's, that's what that is. <laughs> that, you know what, I'm, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, it, that's that's an. I mean, like you said, twenty pounds is a small fortune, and oh, when yeah. you when you yeah. need, I don't know, a coat that's going to keep you warm in the winter. Maybe, I don't know, maybe some boots. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, something to keep your feet not exposed to uh, the elements. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I read a couple books about Crimea, and I couldn't believe that you know your your Western European powers go into this, um, you know, this part of of Europe. And I, you know, I understand, you know, intelligence then wasn't what, what you would consider now. Yeah. Like, equate the two. Um, but, you know, just look at Napoleon's invasion. It's been, you know, his, his generals, his brigade and battalion commanders all wrote, listen, you have to have winter clothes to come yeah. in the winter. You have to do all these things. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, we're going to war. Oh, man, it's, it's hot. And then there's winter, you know, winter's coming, but... Hey, should we order things? I mean, we should, but then it never happens. Exactly. You know, it's you know, like, you know, we don't have to buy this yet. It can wait. And then by the time they wait, it's too fucking late. Yeah. And everyone's freezing to death. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's not even a question of intelligence. Everyone knew the history of the place. So, you know, they, they should have known. But, yeah. yeah again. So, so, I mean, the, the Legion at this time, you know, at this point is fighting in Crimea and they also have elements in Italy where they're fighting the Austrians. Yeah. You know? um, well, and this is kind of where you see like the Legion becoming this, you know, getting the reputation it has today. Uh, well, yes, this is this is where kind of. Pretty much the the. The start really of what the Legion became kind of into the 20th century uh, all through the 19th century into the 20th century this is where it kind of really starts to to gel um and the 
Napoleon wanted to recover the what he saw as well, what was the the what is today the French province of Savoy, Savoy, um, which was part of Italy at the time. Yeah. Um, and his allies really in in Italy were the Sardinians, the Piedmontese. Um, he cut a deal with them, um, and they basically engineered engineered it that the Austrians would declare war on um, on the Sardinians. They came into came into Italy, and then Napoleon committed the his forces um, with the in eighteen fifty nine. Yeah. So he committed his forces to back up the Piedmontese. And, you know, you had a, a whole series of battles and then you had the, the probably the most famous and probably the most famous among the French and among the Legion was the Battle of Magenta. Yeah. Um, and that's where General McMahon won the, the first flag of the Legion um, or was awarded the first flag of the Legion uh, by Napoleon. Um, which I was actually lucky to be part of the honor guard to retire that flag from service. Oh, that's um, cool. In 1994. So that flag was still being paraded right up until 1994. Um, when it actually ended up with too many battle honors on it, and they said, fucking thing is getting way too heavy, so it has yeah. to be <laughs> put in the museum. Yeah. And we'll give you a new one. So, you know, that was 1859. Um, it it was instrumental kind of with I mean you had Garibaldi involved and you know you had all that going on and instrumental with kind of the the building of what is modern day Italy. Yeah, I mean I probably should have prefaced that at this point there there is no Italy. Uh, yeah. You've got you know you've got the papal states, you've got a lot of yeah. smaller city states in the north. Yeah, you've got the Genoese. Yeah. you've got you know all this going on and. You know, it was, you've got a, uh, an Italian king that really doesn't control anything. Um, and it was kind of the first, and, and it was the kind of formation of kind of, you know, Garibaldi and what he did later on. And um, kind of, a, in a way, kind of leftist politics and leftist revolutionaries and stuff like that. So, you know, you know there, there was a, and a significant kind of point in history that yeah. I don't think a lot of people kind of really think about. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that, I think that gets lost in a lot of, uh, you know, if you want to go into like political theory, political history, people forget about Garibaldi uh, yeah. and, and the effect that, you know, left, you know, what you would call leftism now, you know, those types of policies yeah. had on uh what was largely seen as a nationalist struggle. Like, you know, we're going to yeah. form Italy, you know, it's yeah. sometimes you'll have a blending of the two. Uh, yeah. you, you know, that, that's just, I think that's inevitable. That's going to happen. Um, but it's how you kind of pull the two apart again yeah. is, is where we get lost in the sauce. Yeah. Um, so now. And, and inter interestingly, oh, it was also the, the formation of the Red Cross. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a, a huge part of, uh, you know, Florence Nightingale, all yeah. right, and she went over to Crimea to help people and was just like, oh, my God, yeah. no, you can't have people sitting in, like, their own filth or, or reusing bandages, like, exactly, yeah. you know, that went into, a, that was a, the, the driving force behind the formation of the Red Cross. Well, it was, um, it was the, um, 
Florence Nightingale went to started kind of the the history of nursing in um, in in England, and yeah. then the Battle of Sedan was really the the point where because of the the absolutely horrific casualties that went on, um, it was where oh I'm, after losing his name now in my head, but it was where. Um, one of the officers was so horrified by seeing the amount of casualties and the type of casualties because the terrain there was not really conducive to picking a fight with anybody. Yeah. Um, that he helped found the Red Cross to, to take care of not just the wounded soldiers who were being abandoned on the field, but also to take care of wounded civilians. Yeah, I mean, we, we've had a horrible... I mean, I, I guess that's just kind of like uh, the, the plight of humanity is that uh, our medicine did not keep up with our military technology or, yeah. or tactics, you know? I mean, we yeah. were still, as rifling got better and, and these rifles, as, as, as rounds got larger, we're still marching in lockstep over open terrain, uh, formation to formation, uh, you know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you probably saw that change a little bit with the, with the onset of the American Civil War. You saw things kind of break up a little more. Uh, you still had a lot of that formation on formation fighting, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's, I, you know, the Gatling gun and, and uh, vast artillery kind of taught you to spread out a little bit. But yeah. uh, now now we're going to Mexico. All right. Uh, Napoleon III was like, hey, again, like we were talking about, we are going to be a world power. And he plucks uh, from amongst all these issues in the world. You know what? We're going to go to Mexico. The United States can't do anything, right? Because they're... Yeah. They're in the in the middle of the civil They're war. In the middle of the civil war. Yeah, and he plucks a poor Austrian man by the name of Maximilian to Welcome become Max. emperor of Mexico. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, dude. I, I always okay. wonder what that interview went like. It was like, <laughs> wait, do, you, do you speak Spanish? No. Yo, you're our guy. Yeah, I mean, and let's face it. For you know, not not too long. You know, too much uh, longer before that. You have the Austrians and French at each other's throats. Yeah, you know, so like you're—he's just plucking this. I mean, uh, I what I l did read about Maximilian is he was actually a very good naval commander for the Austrians, um, but he was a member of the royal family. So he was yeah. like, "Hey, I need somebody who's not too threatening, who I can kind of boss around." Max, what do you think? And like you said, Max, the man who did not speak Spanish, the man whose wife, uh, if I remember correctly, was a, an Austro-Italian woman. Yeah, um, ends up in Mexico, and uh, Napoleon III sends the Legion over, um, over to Mexico to fight on his behalf. Yeah, yeah. So they um, out of all the kind, like you know, let's. I want to expand the overseas empire. Let's find somewhere where we can do it. Yeah. Oh, Mexico. It's like what the fuck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, how do you, I mean, not to get off track, but like, how are you going to supply that dude? Because you know, exactly. that's come down to you, you, you don't like at this point, you're not known as like a big naval power. Um, you know, we get, you're trying to project force, but just because you're yeah. still emperor doesn't yeah. mean you're going to be able to keep this going. You know, it's just, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So he decided on Mexico, he decided to install Maximilian as the emperor, um, which kind of went down with, again, with the rich people who were going to make money out of it, but the rest of the people kind of going, like, what the fuck is this dude doing here? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, he really couldn't have picked a worse country because at this point, since the 1820s, the Mexican people had been fighting uh, yeah. to, to really put up an actual republic, not have a strong man as president or, you yeah. know, like yeah. they've, they've been fighting for this for 40 were, years up yeah, until that point. Because of all this fighting for, for a republic, they were, you know, they were pretty experienced and, yeah. you know, they, they weren't, there weren't going to be any kind of pushover for any army yeah. that was coming in. They were pretty experienced, not just only in pitched battles, but they were experienced in guerrilla warfare. Um, and they had the huge advantage of terrain. So, you know, and I, the other thing, of course, was, you know, logistics in Mexico um, for the French uh, was just, you know, it was just chaos. Um, yeah. They they landed in Veracruz like everybody else tends to do. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, you know they and they pushed inland, but um, I mean the I suppose Mexico became famous in the Legion for the what a lot of historians kind of refer to as the Battle of Pueblo. Um, the Legion refers to kind of the the Battle of Camarón. Yeah, Cameroon. That's how that's how I read about it. <laughs> yeah. um, so the Battle of Cameroon all revolves around revolves around a gold shipment, which was being shipped um, to Veracruz um, to pay soldiers and you know pay debts and stuff like that. And it's you know it's just a small small unit of sixty odd legionnaires. Um, under the command of Captain Danju, who was a combat veteran already, and he had a wooden hand. The most, um, the most famous hand in, in the like most all famous the hand in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you know, they're they're heading, you know, they're escorting this gold shipment. Um, when they get hit, they get bumped by ambush by uh, Mexican troops. Um, you know, and they. They were well. They were they were sitting, having it all starts off kind of. It rolls on over over a couple of days, but you know they're sitting there and they're having their coffee in the morning. Um, they get bumped um, by the Mexican uh, Mexican troop by Mexican cavalry. Um, they then they start to, as part of protect, continuing to protect the gold shipment. They start kind of a rolling little uh, rolling skirmishes. Um, and they find the what's known in the Legion as the Hacienda. And in every town, pretty much in every town where there's a Legion base, there is a bar called the Hacienda to this okay. day. Um, so, you know, they get, they get as far as there and they harden as much as they can inside this, you know, this building, this ranch house. Um, and they continue to hold off the Mexicans. Um, at this point, there's close to there, there's close to two thousand Mexicans between cavalry and infantry who are there, um, you know, and they they continue to fight. Their officers are killed. Uh, Danju is killed, um, and it's, as each officer is killed, then an NCO takes over, yeah. and by the end of it, there's, you know, most of the legionnaires are dead. There's a few wounded, and there's three guys left standing. Um, so the three guys. Which it it starts a a history in the Legion of doing a Cameroon, which is outnumbered. Fuck it, we'll go down fighting. Yeah, um, they were out of ammunition, so they they just strapped on the bayonets and charged the Mexican cavalry. 
Um, <laughs> I just like, dude. I you know, you and I both have been in some hairy situations. Yeah. I have never once, okay, thought you know what. Fix bayonets. Let's do this. Like we are totally outnumbered. Let's just throw yeah. a little piece of iron onto the end of our rifle and just go exactly. It's hauling you know... balls at. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, the Mexican the the Mexican um, Mexican general said, you know, he halted fire on them. Um, they'd been <laughs> in this bayonet charge. They had been wounded a couple of times. He stopped. The, he you know he ordered an, uh, to cease fire. Um, and the official account is that the Mexican general said, these are not men, these are demons. Everyone knows that what he actually said was, these guys are fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't, just get them away at this yeah. point. Just get, get them yeah. the fuck out of here. So <laughs> they, um, the three legionnaires, the, the NCO in charge of them, uh, cut a deal with the uh, with the Mexican general that he could take his wounded and his dead off the field, and that they would leave. So and they could keep their weapons. Um, and this has started. This has actually started a tradition. The the Mexican army actually uh, commemorates Cameroon as well. Um, and they go to the hacienda or the monument where the hacienda was, and they lay a wreath every year. Um, and whenever possible, the legion. Sends uh, sends a unit down, a small group of soldiers down there as well. Um, that, that's a cool little exchange. Yeah, that's that's a cool little exchange. But like, yeah. why did that? Why did that kind of? Uh, why did the Legion kind of like grab onto that? Why is that such a big deal now? Um, it it became a real PR thing that you know, in the face of just complete and utter defeat, that the Legion goes down fighting. Mm. Um, it just does not surrender. Um, and, you know, you're, the expectation in, in being the unwanted ones of France, really, were kind of there because, yeah, we kind of have to have you now at this point. Yeah. Um, is that you will always be given the worst job. You'll always be given the worst mission. Um, they'll expect you to complete it, um, but they won't give you the means, really. But just to fuck everybody off, you'll go down fighting. Yeah. Um, and you know, this, there's there's a whole series of these even after um, even after uh, Cameroon in North Africa, you've got El Mongar, which is a similar enough situation um, where a, a unit were ambushed, um, which was in September. Forget actually what year it was, but it wasn't long after Cameroon. Um, you know, they were ambushed and they, you know, they fought to the fought to the last man against the Berber tribesmen. Um, and that's commemorated by the second infantry regiment, which was my regiment, as kind of their Cameroon, as gotcha. our own Cameroon. But there's a whole series of these as you know, kind of time goes on of you know, small legion units fighting to the last man. Um, and it it's kind of it's it's celebrated every year. That and you know Danju's hand is paraded every year from the museum. Um, like, I mean, guys hand around. Yeah, I mean that's. I think when I was a younger soldier, and you know, I'm just reading stuff, you know, and the fact that there's a military unit in the world that has like, uh, you know, a captain's, 
you know, keep in mind, I'm in the U.S. Army. I'm like, I hear Captain. I'm like, oh, this guy, this guy's just going <laughs> to speak for six hours during a safety brief. I can't imagine liking a Captain so much that I kept this prosthetic and we we marched with it, you know? Like, I, um, but I mean, like, Don Ju, he's, he's like, uh, you know, the dude, you know, if, if there's a, I don't want to say venerate, that's probably too strong a word, but the guy's held in really high regard, you know? Oh, yeah, I mean? he is, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, when you, when you enlist, um, and you're in uh, Oban, which is the headquarters of the Legion now, just outside of Marseille. Um, when you sign your contract, you sign it in the museum in front of the hand. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you've got the general who commands, you know, you've got the, the general who commands the Legion um, because it has its own general. Um, he's there. He t- you, know, you swear your oath to France. You sign your contract. But you're doing it all in the presence of the hand. Um, and on the 14th of July, um, or sorry, yeah, on the 14th of July, every year when you've got the big military parades in, um, well, on Cameroon and the 14th of July, sorry, you've got his hand is paraded in the, in the, pra- in the parade ground of Oban. Um, you know, he gets brought out twice a year and, you know, again, but, you know, the hand has to be paraded. I mean, can you imagine being a soldier at any point and, and just thinking that, you know, I'm going to be remembered by this particular unit for the rest of my life? <laughs> you know, like, and, like, I can only think, like, can you imagine, like, uh, the, the, the detail comes down. All right, Captain, you're going to take, you know, two platoons worth of legionnaires. And you're going to take the gold from point A to point B. And, and you're you're not coming back until it gets distributed properly. And there's Captain Donju, just like fuck, man. Can I just drink my coffee? Like, why am I getting this first thing in the morning? You know. And he just he gets everybody together. He takes off, and like two days into it, he's just like, yeah, scratching scratching his back with his but, with his hand. And he's just like, oh god, I can't believe this is happening right now. You know. Yeah, uh, it's it it's um it's unique, really, when it comes to military organizations that we've got you know we venerate a hand um, yeah but you know what there's 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 a lot of there's personality behind the legion that you don't find in any yeah. other uh military organization so it makes sense it goes yeah. together you know it, yeah it, it fits with the whole mystique of the legion that it, we do yeah. something like fucking this and <laughs> I, I mean the one part of the tradition of cameron is that um the men are woken up on the morning of Cameroon by their officers who served them, uh, who served them coffee, like coffee that's loaded with rum in bed. Yeah. So like you're lying there in the morning going, these fuckers got to be around in a few minutes, but you actually can't get out of bed even if you want to. So you just have and to stay put. They come around with this huge fucking pot of coffee <laughs> that's loaded to the gills with rum. Um, and they serve you a mug of coffee in bed. You know what I, I would take that over some of the other times I had an officer like going around the bricks, like waking soldiers up, you know? All right. Hey, we had like four guys get DUIs last night. Everybody up. It's time for formation. I would rather just get the cup of coffee and rub. (laughs) That's exactly what I would prefer. Um, So the, the, the new Republican government in Mexico gets installed in 1867 and Max loses his head. Um, You know, rest in peace, Max. Sorry, bro. Um, (laughs) You know, but so we see the Legion head back to their stomping ground in, in Algeria, right? And yeah. then and then we get the Franco-Prussian War. 
Okay. Yeah, so the, the Legion kind of gets moved back and it's it rejoins the Army of Africa. Um, you have various shit goes on in France. There's one of the things that happens is um, you get a decree in France that says that any any Legionnaires who are born on French territory uh, or who have been, even though they might be foreigners, if they were born on French ter- territory, can't stay with the legion and they get transferred and it depletes the the numbers in the legion quite a bit yeah so they get transferred to french regular army units what was the Um, reason was it just that was it to pull combat experience into the regular french line units in a way it was i mean this is something that they kind of saw kind of over the years that you know in in france the the army of africa gets you know, it gets redeployed, even though it's supposed to stay in Africa and it's supposed to fight in Africa. They get pulled onto all the other expeditions, like you know the Crimea and stuff like that, because they they are more combat experienced than the French units, and they're better trained than the French units from mainland France. So they get pulled around the place on a regular basis. Um, and part of it was they wanted to keep the Legion foreign. Okay. Um, so they wanted to take these guys, you know, they would bring combat experience with them, bring it into the army. But then, you know, the army was hugely depleted numbers wise as well at the same time because they had ended conscription. Yeah. Um, so, you know, France is kind of it, it's ripe for the picking at the time. It's got a lot of issues going on. There's a lot of strikes. Uh, you know, you had these uh, these huge tailors strikes and riots in in Paris because of you know the invention of the loom and kind of you know sewing machines and stuff like that, and that causes a lot of shit. Um, and you know, you had the strongest kind of power in in Europe at the time were the Prussians, and they've got Otto von Bismarck, who's you know really switched on, and he he wants to make Prussia kind of. You know, create a, a greater Germany. Um, yeah. Take control of you know the the other states, and he realizes if he's got if he's got to do this in Europe, then he's really got to put the French in their place and you know put them down. So um, you know he maneuvers France into a war, um, and not and not just maneuver them into it. Like he smashed the French. Oh yeah. 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 Like it it wasn't even pretty. Um, you know, von Bis, you know Otto von Bismarck. You know whether you like him or not. I'm not a particular fan of him personally. Yeah. Uh, but you look at what he was able to do in 30, oh, yeah. I mean, in he, 30 years he with something in. else. Yeah. Um, you know, he knew logistically he was better positioned. He'd been preparing for years. Um, you know, the the French literally just couldn't move. What they had, they just couldn't move around in time. The, the Germans had superior weaponry, you know, they had, you know, the, the, they had a very modern, you know, pretty much the same, uh, the, you know, they had the Krupp artillery pieces, which are, you know, resemble what modern artillery pieces are now. Um, you know, the French were still outdated in, their, in, in stuff like that. So, you know, they end up with the, the Battle of Orléans at the, very fa- at the very end of it, and they get the shit hammered out of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean Bismarck it's for, for Bismarck the the Franco-Prussian war was his was his short little war. Like that's yeah. how a lot of his writing addressed it. Like yeah. like you said, hey, if I'm going to if we're going to be the power here in mainland Europe, 
because you know he's not catching you know England. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. They they had centuries on on what the you know von Bismarck had, but yeah, he had to deal with France and he got it knocked out pretty quick. Oh, he did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It was, <laughs> I mean, when you look at it, I mean the. The, the Prussians invaded, uh, crossed into France, the exact same place where um, the Nazis did. Yeah. Exact same, you know, mark on the map. It's exactly where they came through. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and the, the Legion was deployed inside of France at this time. Yeah. This is where um, there was this scramble that, you know, we just don't have enough. We don't have enough troops. We don't have enough combat experience troops. And the Legion gets deployed for the very first time to fight on Maine and France. And they get, um, I mean, I think at the Battle of Orléans, they had, there was 1,200 Legionnaires killed out of a total of 4,500 French casualties. So, you know, it's a big chunk of, you know, the French casualties were Legionnaires. The other problem that the Legion had, and the Legion didn't want to get into it, um, they really didn't want to get into a fight with Prussia and they were very vocal about it because the Legion had a huge amount of German-speaking recruits. And, you know, their, their commanders knew that, you know, even going back to the time of the Roman legions was, you know, it, you know the Romans never deployed Gauls against Gauls. Yeah. Or Germans against Germans. So, you know, the Legion had kind of gone, whoa, this is a bad idea. We really can't do this. We can't expect guys to you know, to fight against their, their own people. And it, it, interestingly, it's it's kind of the basis of the, the rule now that if the Legion is deployed to a combat situation, um, that guys can put up their hand and go, well, you know, I don't want to fight against these because, you know, they, these are, you know, people from my own country. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, you can be a conscientious objector, but you can still be a Legionnaire. Yeah, I mean, and you got to think with with all the hot spots that you could go to, like you you probably won't have a whole element saying, "Hey, like I yeah. can't go here today." You know, I, yeah. I can't I can't partake in this one. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, you have you're fighting against Prussia, and you know, with that, especially that shared air, you know, the Alsace Lorraine, like right there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you have people from that area that speak both French and German. Uh, and yeah. you, you you have people from that area who consider themselves German. You have people who consider themselves French. So yeah. you know, you just you know, they they the Legion really kind of just uh, said, you know, we don't want to get into this, but they got dragged into it anyway, and they got overused. I mean, they got pushed around the place to every you know every battle site during that thing, and took massive casualties, which seriously depleted them afterwards. Yeah, and, and like uh, that goes back to what you were saying, though. They were going to get the worst assignments. They were going to yeah. get the worst missions. Um, yeah. And when, you know, you look at the, the combat experience that they racked up, you want that everywhere, <laughs> you know? Especially yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, they they were used to uh, being in Algeria and pretty much, you know, fought, you know fighting every day. Um, yeah. I mean, they had the... In, in, Af- in North Africa, you had these, well, for want of a better word, these patrol bases or fire bases, uh, which were strung out all over the country. A lot of them are still in existence today. Um, and they would patrol out of there. But, you know, they would, you know, pretty much guarantee they'd wake up to the, to the sound of gunfire. Um, and 
they would take regular casualties from these bases kind of every day. Yeah. So they were used to fighting. They were used to kind of living rough. Um, they didn't require a lot. Um, and they were, you know, they were because they were used to marching in the desert and patrolling on foot in the desert. They were used to moving from place to place pretty fast. Yeah. So, I mean, there's been a couple of people that have literally called them foot cavalry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they just, Hey, put it on your back and let's yeah. get to moving. And yeah, like, I mean, I, I read an account of, um, of them in, in Algeria where they had literally marched 50 miles to a fight. Um, you know, marched 50 miles in hobnail boots in the desert, wearing a, wearing a great coat. Um, nope. not great. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Yeah, dude, at my peak, I could walk 50, but then I'm taking a nap for like 10 hours afterwards, okay? Like, jumping right into it, nah. I mean, and and that's, it's like, uh, you know, I I talk, you know, when people ask, like, what, like, what, we're we're so well equipped now, and I'm like, it's different. Like, um, I don't think soldiers in the 1850s could carry the weight we carry now. Like, did they carry heavy weight? Absolutely. Yeah. you know how it is, man. You're carrying 100, 110, 120 pounds, you know, yeah. and, and that's just like your basic combat load. That's not even yeah. throwing stuff in a ruck and for multi-day missions. But like for me, I couldn't march in a great coat. Uh, the boots, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, socks fell apart on your feet, mm-hmm. you know. And then on top of that, look at the bags that they wore, if they had bags yeah. at all, you know. Like it's you can't really compare it to because, uh, you know, you have, you know, shitty gear situations either way well exactly yeah yeah i mean and again you know the modern soldier is not expected to they, their loads would have been much lighter but the modern soldier is you know he's not expected to cover that kind of distance um mainly because you'd be dead from the weight by the yeah. time you got there yeah absolutely like i i remember going on like a 40 mission and i ended up all told it was like 160, 170 pounds. And at the time yeah. I wore like, I only weighed like 160 and I broke my collarbone the first day, yeah. you know, <laughs> like it just cracked. And I was just like, well, this is going to be fun for the next three yeah, days. Yeah. You know? well, I mean, when, when I was in the first Gulf war, we did an exercise where they were planning on how they were going to, you know, kind of cross the, the Iraqi border and um, which involved dropping us by helicopter just across the border. Um, and then we were going to have to march because, uh, <laughs> yeah, because some, because some French officer decided, well, they're the Legion, um, they're used to doing this kind of shit. And we were under command of the 82nd Airborne at the time. Hey, that's what we do. All right. That is what we and, do. And, uh, and some American general thought, yeah, this would be really great. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so you had guys who were being dropped out of helicopters um with 50 cows and stuff like this expected uh, to march to uh-huh. the position um unfortunately someone got the sense of going you're all fucking nuts yeah uh I, at least you had someone that do you know throw that good sense out there we did that yeah. in afghanistan with toes and 50 cows and i'm like this is stupid well, we, this is we the had dumbest shit with your lighter yeah. toe yeah but, you know, yeah but lands of 50 cows yeah it's still dumb they're not yeah. supposed to be walked anywhere all right like it's just yeah <laughs> uh, we we had a we had a guy um, buckle his knee and had to be medivaced because when the the chopper dropped him, they said, "Well, we we can't actually put it on the ground because yeah. of dust." So he's got so to hop. Gonna have to kind of drop out, and um, 
he'd yeah, that'll do it. With a 50 cal book and strap to the top of his pack. Yeah. Uh, thank you, 82nd, for one of your more harebrained schemes. Okay. Uh, so now well, this, this is why airborne is irrelevant these days. <sighs> According to uh, you. All right. I have to get that to in you. there. <laughs> but, yo, you're not wrong. You are not wrong. Um, okay. But now we're going, we're heading back into North Africa after the Franco Prussian War, right? Yeah. Uh, what were some of the things the Legion was doing uh, be- essentially between 1870 and 1914? Well, between 1870 and 1914 was really kind of the heyday of, the, like all the rest of the colonial powers. You know, France and England were in agreement with the Entente Cordiale that they wouldn't fight each other. Um, but everyone wanted, wanted land in Africa or wanted a colony somewhere, be it Africa, Asia or whatever. Yeah. Um, and France had a lot of jealousy of the British Empire because it had India. Um, so France gets back to North Africa. It continues its its kind of uh, solidification of kind of its North African territories in Morocco and Algeria. Um, then it starts to move down into West Africa. We've got the, you know, the, the first French expeditions into Indochina. Um, you know, so they, you know, and again, um, and I think uh, Joe Kasabian had kind of mentioned this in, in his latest podcast on, on Cambodia. It's where, you know, the French got into Vietnam, it got into Cambodia, Laos, and, and all these other countries, and pretty much under the pretense that, you know, we'll send missionaries first. Yeah. The locals, not wanting to have Christians there, attack the, the missionaries. And it's the, the French excuse to kind of send troops in afterwards. And, you know, and for the most part, it was the Legion got sent in. Um, so, you know, you've got all these small wars all over the world uh, where the Legion has been deployed. And it's, you know, you've got the steady increase in numbers in regiments in the Legion up to where it had been, you know, a few, a couple of thousand where it, gets up to its its strength of uh, I think it was uh, oh I think we're about 20,000 or something like this at this point and deployed all over and and you got the the beginnings of the permanent legion bases kind of overseas as well okay um, yeah so and and some of them like some of them existed up until recently I mean you still have um, you still have a legion base in French Guyana in South America even though French Guyana, French Guyana is a bit like Algeria, where Algeria became, it wasn't an overseas colony. It was actually part, it was considered part of France, which yeah. led to other problems later on. Um, French Guyana these days is a, a French province. You know, it's, it's got the whole infrastructure of a French province. So it's not regarded as a colony as such. Um, but, you know, you've got this going on and you've got, you know, you've got several battles or several engagements that the Legion gets involved in. Um, you've also got the French are involved in the uh, in Central Africa. You know, they, there is the race to um, the race to gain territory in Central Africa, even though they were friends. The race between the French and the British. Yeah. Um, the French end up with Chad and the British end up with Sudan. So... You know, and arguably the British one out there because, you know, I've, <laughs> I did my first tour of duty in Chad and there's nothing fucking there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big pile of sand. 
I mean, uh, you know, and this this goes back to uh, you know what Cecil Rhodes said. I need a I need a a railroad from Cape Town to Cairo. Yeah. Right. Um, and although, like you said, you had the cordial entente, but like still, uh, it, it may not come down to a shooting war, but you know, France and England were doing everything else yeah. that they could to kind of trip each other up. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, so I mean, at this point, the Legion, you know, they're they're essentially in all these small colonial, uh, you know, wars to to kind of, yeah. you know, in the words of Eddie Izzard, just plant the flag, you know, like plant the flag, build the empire, yeah, um, gain all these territories, and of course, all these all these places kind of later on cause you know they you know they had there there's consequences to all these actions later on, including kind of. The, the two biggest consequences of France, France's colonial wars or colonial occupations that come down the road, kind yeah. of, you know, 100 years later. Yeah. All right. And so now 1914 hits. We're in World War One, And the yeah. Legion at this point, you said, is around 20,000, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know it, it expanded slightly bigger than 20,000 during it, the, the, the war, right? Did. I think... Uh, I'd have to check my books again, but I think it gets up to about 25,000. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, um, I, I know it went up a, a, a little bit because at this yeah. point you have a lot of people from, uh, not a lot, but there's a, a sizable number from the United States that want to get in yeah. on it. And their only foot, you know, the only way to get in is to join the Legion to go fight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, you know, at this point, the states, they don't come into the war until 1917 because we're yeah. doing what Americans do. Which is let's kind of see how this unfolds. Oh, something bad happens. Now let's get involved. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, crucially, I mean, you've uh, there's there's a number of famous Americans at this time which um, which end up in the Legion, like Alan Seeger, the poet, who you know who wrote the famous poem, which is kind of still held in extremely high regard in the Legion, which is you know telling about I will you know have a rendezvous with death. Um, you've also and his name is on the tip of my tongue. You have the African American who joins the Legion as a way to get into a fight. Oh my gosh, dude! I know who you're talking Brian, about. Because America won't get into a fight. Yep. And he becomes a highly decorated aviator mm -hmm. um, when African Americans weren't allowed to fly. Um, oh my gosh, dude! I gotta, I gotta look up the, up the name because yeah. I, I, I read about him last night, man, and I totally yeah. forgot. Yeah, I've got it here in one of my books, but. Um, but you know, you've got these people. You've got a lot of interesting people coming in and joining the Legion in order to get in the fight. Um, and you, and the the Legion gets decimated, kind of, you know, on several occasions, kind of on the on the Western Front at Verdun and the Somme, um, to the point where it has to be completely completely rebuilt from scratch. Um, you know, they're pretty much destroyed to a man. Um, you know, so you've got this going on. They, you have the, they they basically formed what was known as the the RMLE, which was the uh, Regiment de Marche Légion Étrangère, which okay. was the marching regiment of of the Foreign Legion, um, and they are the really kind of the every modern regiment kind of springs from them. Okay. Um, the, even though the Second Infantry Regiment carries the flag that McMahon won at Magenta, um, the we really trace our more, modern origins to. I mean, I continue to say we because once you're in, you're never really out. You're never yeah. out. Um, uh, so, hey, Dermot, was it Eugene Bullard? 
Is that our... Yes, Eugene Bullard, yeah. There we go. There we go. Yes. Yeah. And his story is why there was a movie made about him. Um, why there wasn't a better movie. So it was a B movie. Why there wasn't a better movie made about him. Fuck knows why. Because oh, we know why. He was a legend. We know why. Uh, this... Yeah, well, we know why. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let, let's yeah. be honest. We can't have black military heroes because... Well, that... exactly, yeah. And I, in fact, I think the movie that was made was even French. Um, well, I mean, let's face it. You know as well as I do, uh, they've had their own issues with, uh, you know, minority populations within France. So... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, World, World War One was... Uh, I mean, they the, the Legion did take it on the chin, but, like, this was... I mean, they, they were... Uh, you know, like you said, they were in the middle of everything in the Somme and, yeah. and you know, um, yeah, they were in the middle of everything. They get, you know, they get hammered and smashed again repeatedly. I think, uh, I think in total, the Legion was pretty much rebuilt three times. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, then that's, I thought was, uh, something else. Cause you imagine, I mean, you know, like you knew what you were getting into, right? Like when you enlisted yeah. in the Legion, you knew what it was at this point, you know, the Legion kind of has, it's got a cycle. You know, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, in the First World War, you literally see this entire formation get decimated. Yeah. Um, and people are still lining up to enlist. Yeah. Like, you, you kind of know, yeah. dude, this uh, could end up really it, bad, but, you know. <laughs> you know, it, it gains its reputation kind of from around then, you know, from, well, it, it, it's been starting to gain a reputation from Africa. Yeah. Uh, from North Africa. But it's really starting to gain this reputation, kind of this romantic mysticism about kind of you know it it fights to the last man and you know they never leave a brother behind and this kind of stuff point kind of going on, and yeah, and for the most part they kind of live up to it because they do get hammered every yeah. time. Um, so you know they um, the the battle honors from the first world war are are you know, they're huge on everybody's flag. Um, so the, after the first world war, after the, you know, the peace is signed, they go back to North Africa and that starts the whole period of kind of the pacification of North, of, of North Africa. Um, the really kind of best book that covers pre that. And then that whole, that whole period would be Martin Windrose, um, our friends beneath the sands. And it really goes, it's a long read. I mean, it, it takes, it's an in-depth read. I mean, it's a deep dive into the French in North Africa and why they were there, who the personalities were and what they were involved in. And, you know, it was, pacification was, yeah. you know, kind of akin to the, uh, you know, it was the same language that was used in Vietnam, uh, you know, pacification of Vietnam, which was basically burn everything that, you know, we couldn't use and deny, yeah. you know, deny all this to the, um, to the yeah. indigenous population, indigenous Pacif- rebels. Pacification was a churched up speak to, uh, I, I can't leave anything for my enemy. Um, yeah. and, and, yeah, yeah. you know, nine ninety nine 99% of the time the locals get involved, r- roped up in my enemy, especially when you're talking in counterinsurgency. So, yeah, yeah. um, yeah, that pacification, like when I read things like that, um, you know, like I read Frederick Downs, um, you know, his, his experiences in Vietnam, mm. you know, when you just read what some, some of these people did, it's like, dude, it's nuts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I, so I can only imagine, you know, 
what people involved in those kind of operations were. Um, but, uh, you know, so, you know, th- like you were saying, the, the Legion has this air of mystique, this, yeah. there's this rough and rowdy type of guys. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then as they're, they're, they're building this mystique, building this reputation, we hit 1940 and the French are just beaten over the head by the Nazis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, the, you know, the Legion was, um, the Legion was actually on kind of the forefront, kind of on the Allied side. Um, yeah. But you had uh, an unintended split because of the Vichy French. You had an, an unintentional split of the, of the Foreign Legion because, you know, you had Legionnaires who were fighting alongside the Allies to beat back, the, you know, trying to hold or control the, the Nazi advance. But at the same time, you know, when the, the peace treaty was signed between um, Pétain and, and Hitler, you had uh, legionnaires who were with the Free French. And you had legionnaires who were trapped in Vichy France. Um, so you had, you know, you had the 13th DBLE uh, who fought at Narvik. Um, you know, they, they landed alongside the British, uh, aided the Norwegian, Norwegian resistance. And had a crack at the Nazis, while at the same time you had legionnaires in Algeria, which was Vichy France. Um, yeah, you know, and there was an unusual situation during the whole thing in the in the Middle East, where you had uh, Lebanon, Syria was part of Greater Lebanon. It was a French uh, French colony. Um, it was Vichy French, but you had the at the time you had two French cavalry or two legion cavalry regiments. And the first, the first cavalry were on the Allied side, and the second cavalry were on the German side. Um, Jesus Christ, man! <laughs> and the Germans decided to send them out. Um, you know, they they advanced on each other, and the Germans decided to send the Legionnaires out because why get Germans killed when we yeah. got these guys? And the second cavalry went. You know, you know, they turned around and went. You know, big finger to you. Um, we're joining the Allies. And they deserted and went over to the other side um, and fought alongside the Allies from there on in. Um, you had the, and what gets to me quite a bit, um, which, you know, you hear Brits and Americans going, oh, the French, you know, cheese eating surrender monkeys. Um, yeah. They kind of forget what the French were involved in. They kind of don't realize there was a Narvik. Um, they don't realize how many French troops were killed kind of in the evacuation of Dunkirk. Yeah, and it, it's not even just that. I mean, yeah, the the Vichy regime sucked. I mean, but, yeah. uh, you know, if you actually, you know, let's face it, how many people on Twitter tell us, you know, context all the time? They like to scream yeah. that word at us. Yeah. Uh, Patan was in a bad way. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, you know he had uh, arguably one of the, you know, at the time, one of the most uh, – technologically advanced and, and, and tenacious enemies that were bat, you know, barreling yeah. right towards, you know, right down there, you know, the, the French door, they took Paris, yeah. you know, yeah, it sucks. Um, and I, I can't say that I judge the man for it. I, yeah. I don't appreciate signing, you know, a deal with the fascist, but yeah. you know, I, I wasn't pretend, you know, I wasn't yeah. in his and, shoes, and, I mean, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, you get people saying you, you get guys and this, you know, you get this, especially on social media, you'll have guys going, well, the French surrendered. Well, hang on a second. They were fighting a rear guard action to get the British off the beach. And yeah. then pretty much abandoned after that. 
Yeah, and um, let's face it, the Free French forces uh, held their own pretty well against, yeah. uh, you know, honestly, a, a much better armed occupying force. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the Free, the Free French forces later after Dunkirk under, under de Gaulle, and it's where the Legion got involved in quite a lot of actions. You know, they, they really did, you know, they put in some hard yards. Um, I mean, what a lot of guys won't realize is that Operation Torch, which was the, the American, the Allied landings in North Africa, really wouldn't have come off if it hadn't been for the French. Because, yep. and the thing is, the interesting stories of the Operation Torch is among the first troops to land were Legionnaires. Because you had Vichy officers commanding Legion units who were protecting beachheads. And the, the Legionnaires landed because, as de Gaulle said, the Legionnaires won't fire on each other. Um, you, so you, you yes, that you got that. The other Legionnaires <laughs> on loudhalers going, don't shoot, it's the Legion. Um, and in one occasion, you had Legionnaires who turned around and shot their Vichy officer. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they went, you know, fuck this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if if you've got, you know, it, you know, people don't realize just how, uh, uh, you know, horrible that had to have been because you're in one unit, yeah. you know, and you're essentially split in two. Yeah, you know, you've got your your the Vichy collaborationist government. You got the three French forces. Yeah. You know, like imagine being a legionnaire from like, you know, Croatia. Just like, dude, I didn't sign up for any of this shit, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, like. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean that's that's a good point. Like whether you're from, you know, you know, no matter where you're from, you're a legion, you know, and yeah. a legionnaire, and you know, the legion is your home. Like that's yeah. a, you know, yeah. Well, it's, you know, the legion is our homeland. So you know, we, and kind of we laugh and joke about it, kind of when we're in. But you know, when you get out, uh, I mean, I work overseas now, and I'm working the security industry. But you know, they bar one guy that I'm working with, everyone else is a legionnaire. Or was you know, was in the Legion, and I yeah. knew the guys while I was in there. So, and quite a lot of the jobs in countries that I've worked in, from Iraq to Afghanistan to you know to North Africa to West Africa, I've been working around Legionnaires the whole time. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's and I suppose it's a bit like a bit of an old boys network is that if someone knows there's a job going, you know, you you kind of recruit among the Legion. Um, you know, so that that family aspect kind of extends and extends into you know kind of post legion life, um, but you know, so it's 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 always there. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the French in North Africa. I mean, El Alamein really wouldn't have come off as great if it hadn't been for the French breakout at Bir Hakim. Um, you know, which saw the interestingly saw the first woman to be accepted as a the only woman to this day <laughs> to be accepted as a legionnaire. It was Susan Travers. And, you know, she had been a, a, a British ambulance driver, a uh, British Army ambulance driver who got assigned to drive General Koenig. Um, she became his lover. Um, and then at Bir Hakim, she actually, you know, drove him out under fire uh, and got out kind of they escaped and that led the breakout of Bir Hakim led to kind of the, the success beyond, you know, the success at uh, El Alamein, um, which pushed the Italians and the, and the yeah. Germans out of North Africa. So, you know, you've got that. I mean, and, and Susan Travers went on to be a tank driver in, uh, in Europe after, <laughs> after D-Day. 
um, and infamously uh, stopped her gunners um, from shooting at Nazi targets so she could run over buildings while they were still in it. <laughs> you know, save the ammunition. I'm just going to drive over the fuckers. You know what? I'm okay with it. I'm yeah. really okay with it. Yeah. Um, um, she this... later went on to actually marry um, a legionnaire and she went to French Indochina um, and when he was called up to parachute into Dien Bien Phu, she told him he better go or she'd take his place. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. That, that, that is a woman who just knew what she wanted to do in life, man. And that oh, was yeah. like, yeah. you know, God yeah. damn. Um, so the Second World War... Yeah, uh, you so, know it. It was it was a mixed bag for the for the Legion, you know, just was, because yeah. of the politics behind everything. Um, and now, you know, we see a big deployment of them into what became known as French Indochina. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of uh, French Indochina kind of is is very indicative of how recruitment works in the Legion. Depending on where conflicts are around the world, is where you get your biggest number of you know. Depending on the geopolitical situation. Is where you end up getting your biggest biggest number of recruits. Okay. So, you know, you had the Balkans War is when we saw uh, an influx of um, of Croatians and Serbs. We had a few. We had a few beforehand, but then you know we saw a big influx of of Croatians and Serbs. Um, the wall coming down between east and west uh, started to see a big influx of. Um, of other Eastern European countries, um, you know, as that as the situations go on around the world, kind of this is where you see your biggest number. And France knew it. Well, knew France's plan was to recover its overseas colonies. I mean, you were talking to Rob Thompson about it uh, when you were talking about Vietnam, and it was it was really a you know they had lost they had lost these territories. You know, they had lost Indochina, kind of their pearl of the Orient the Japanese and they were adamant about taking it back yeah um, I mean and it was it was for natural resources you know yeah, that now, oh, it was all it was yeah. you know it was the, the the rubber plantations um you know the precious metals precious stones and stuff like that they wanted it back um and of course the U.S. wanted to prevent the spread of communism because they were afraid of oh god hey, you know, yeah Southeast Asia becoming communist woo they were they were gonna all get together all of them oh you yeah. know and yeah. just and come right after America again, I mean, <laughs> you know this is you know, um a friend of mine who is an amateur historian ex engineer an amateur historian kind of refers to the period as one of the biggest gold fucks in history yeah um, oh yeah. I mean, it's like I was talking with Dr. Thompson. How did all yeah. those smart people get in one room and think yeah. they're all going to get on the same page? All of them, all yeah. all those movements in that in that big chunk of the world. How are yeah. they all going to get on the same page and just come gunning for you know whatever? It yeah. it, it doesn't work like that, man. No. Like everybody, you know, you look at what uh, Mao did in China as compared to what Lenin and Stalin did in Russia, and then compare yeah. that to what Ho Chi Minh did in Vietnam. And, you know, like everybody had their own, like tailored, you know, Marxism to what they yeah. needed to make it work in their country. Yeah. Like they were not all like, come on. Yeah, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a single ideology. You know, everyone had their own take on it. Yeah. You know, like you were saying with Dr. Thompson. Um, yeah. So it was, you know, the, this whole domino theory was just completely flawed. Yeah, start. but it was an excuse to allow you know 
the French wanted to get back into Indochina. You know, the U.S. wanted to to spread kind of across the Philippines and stuff like that. So, you know, it was expand. It was colonialism without kind of having these colonial empires for some nations. Yeah, I mean, and the um, funny thing is, it's like it, by the mid fifties, right? We yeah. see we see the Brits, with the exception of like Northern Ireland, yeah. like they're starting to inch back away from the colonies yeah. you know yeah. like a lot of the other european powers are kind of backing off there and you have france like no man we're still oh yeah no right? france, france kind of stuck in there yeah until kind of the the you know the dying breath kind of of its colonies i mean um you know it was 1962 by the time they gave up a lot of the places there was still play there was still countries that they held on until 1969 um, I think the Portuguese were the only ones who kind of outdid them, kind of holding on to colonies. Um, uh, yeah, what Mozambique until the early nineties, correct? Uh, no, Moz- Mozambique and Angola kind of went in the seventies. Okay, um, they, they just had prolonged. You had the support, you right? had the Carnation, you had the Carnation Revolution in Portugal. Okay, um, but like France still retained, and um, I'd have to look it up again. But what year it actually gave French Guiana? Uh, the rights to be a department of France, you know, a, a state of France, yeah. because prior to that, you know, it was it was an overseas colony. Um, you know, colony is debatable if you talk to any talk to anyone who's been to French Guiana because it was a penal colony. Um, yeah, the movie Papillon is is based around it, but um, you know, it's they really held out. I mean, they they dug in, especially in. Uh, Indochina and Algeria but you know Algeria uh, or sorry Indochina there was a whole series of, of battles going on there you had Kalban Ridge um, which I think you met which uh, Dr. Thompson mentioned you know these didn't go so well for the Vietnamese um, you know the it there was a whole series of engagements and it, it sucked the French in into kind of a, a false sense of security that you know, they could beat the Vietnamese. Uh, yeah, I mean, they fell into the similar trap that a lot of powers do when dealing with, with insurgents. It's that yeah. the insurgents give up big populated areas and they yeah. work in a space around it. Um, yeah. You know, and yeah. They, you know, they don't get into pitch battles um, because they pull away when they get, when fighting gets too heavy, then, you know, the, the, the colonial power, the French actually thought they were winning. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they... They held on in there, and then, of course, they decided they were going to kind of really put the, you know, sign the death knell of uh, of the Viet Minh, the kind of predecessors of the Viet Cong, and they um, they kind of picked a place uh, in North Vietnam where they could not only interdict the the Chinese supply lines coming in for the Viet Minh, but this is where they were going to kill, you know, food yeah. uh, gaps forces and you know put an end to Ho Chi Minh and that was at Dien Bien Phu and they really I mean I went to Vietnam oh, about seven eight years ago and got a chance to go over there for a couple of days and you couldn't have picked a worse place to pick a fight because, that bad, huh? uh, <laughs> I mean, we, it's referred to in even in Legion lore nowadays when someone picks uh, a ground for a for a patrol base or something like that is don't do a Dien Bien Phu because <laughs> oh man you know, 
they picked a nice flat space where they could put an airfield yeah. and then had it surrounded by mountains. So of the course. dominating terrain was, you know, fucking... Yeah. You know, you were screwed by the dominating terrain. But they just had no idea that Gap was going to be able to manhandle all those artillery pieces. The anti-aircraft guns that they were getting from China and Russia were way more advanced than what anyone kind of expected. Um, and they never expected a lot of these kind of, uh, you know, these, these guys weren't Europeans, so they weren't. Yeah. Uh, and that, I think that's a, that's a trapping of, of a yeah, lot the, of this whole racial trap. Yeah. Of they're not, you know, these aren't white guys. They're never going to be able to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, with, and the Vietnamese, the Vietnamese just basically manhandled uh, artillery pieces on bicycles and by hand. Yeah. Um, uphills. It, yeah, and what's crazy is how, like you said, they were on bicycles. They they had uh, pack mules. They had, yeah. you know, they're pushing the things up. Yeah. Like, they did what they had to do, and they, they brought the fight directly to the French. They did, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, we saw the same thing in, like, uh, the Sino-Japanese War, uh, or the Russo-Japanese War, excuse me, mm. you know, where the Russians are like, no, man, these are just Japanese people. This will be yeah, easy. Yeah. And then you look at what the Japanese did. Like, this is 60 years after the fact, you know, or 50 yeah. years after the fact. And you still kind of have that colonialist mentality. Like, oh, yeah. they will be fine, you know? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're fighting against lesser men, so, you know, we'll be okay. We'll, yeah. We will prevail kind of thing. But, you know, they, seeing the train there when I went to visit, they... You know, it, it takes a hell of a lot. And, you know, there was a lot of these porters died um, along the way, handling, you know, manhandling these these artillery pieces into position. Yeah. Um, and they did, and they got them above. I mean, Dien Bien Phu is a series of kind of fortified hills, or it was a series of fortified hills. Um, the, the French commander who established the base kind of, um, you know, he named... <laughs> he named... Um, he named each position after his after a mistress. Um, <laughs> you know, the thing is, is like French officers do. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that that seems so prototypically like a French like colonel or oh, above yeah. would do. You know, like yeah. yeah, you know, there's there's Marianne, there's Julia. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Man. Stop, stop, stop naming all these. You know, these. Um, these patrol bases in Afghanistan after after people and fucking yeah. some guy you know some guy who died in the civil war and fucking start yeah. naming it after girlfriends and it'll work out way better. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> God, dude, that's that's see, this is I needed this. I needed I needed those little details that you just don't get from uh, you know yeah. a lot of academics, man. Yeah, yeah uh, do you, have- uh, you don't often see that fact in a lot of the history books. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, I mean, honestly, I think that's the biggest thing about the Legion is you don't have a lot of uh, academic writings about the Legion. No, a lot don't. of a lot of it are memoirs from actual Legionnaires. Yeah, um, and I read one a couple years ago, uh, an American guy who deserted twice. Yeah, uh, which, you know, yeah, I, I they know called him. Time. Yeah, you know, and it's like he was just salty about it. Like, and it wasn't. Yeah. It was like one of those like. Oh man, I joined the Legion. I thought I was gonna do this cool stuff, but they like made me clean my room, so now I'm gonna go AWOL, you know, and I'm like, yeah. how first off, who's the publisher that wants you to write this book? Yeah. Uh, because I would like to sit down and have a talk with them. Um, <laughs> but like this is not a book that should have been written. It was just you complaining the entire time. Exactly, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, out of mem as memoirs go, 
Um, there's kind of one by Simon, the, the original by Simon Murray from, uh, from the 1960s, Legionnaire, which is really good. And, uh, you know, the first time I read it wasn't before I enlisted. It was after I'd left the Legion um, because I had the opportunity to meet him and I'd never read his book, even though I'd heard about him. Um, so I got, went out and I managed to pick up a copy of the book and then read it. And I was actually laughing that in 1960, when he enlisted, some of the stuff he was doing, we were doing in 1988 and 1990. Yeah. <laughs> because that shit just doesn't change quickly in the Legion. Yeah. Uh, it just does not change quickly in the Legion. So, you know, it's, oh, wait, we have to do this because it's tradition. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> See, just just the the reading I've done, like I I am not what you would call a big. I don't care about tradition. I really don't care. Yeah. Uh, and being in the eighty second as long as I was, like I had that in my face all the time, <laughs> and I would bitch and moan and complain about it. And then I read about some of the traditional things that you just do, like taking your lumps, you know, getting yeah. through like legionnaire basic training. And I'm like, dude, okay, I can't really like complain about much anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that, and some of the traditions that that lasted up until the nineties weren't that good. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, so you had, you know, you've got this stuff and this, I mean, even though, you know, game and food was 1954. When you enlist in the Legion, you learn all this stuff. Um, you know, this history is, is, you know, is literally beaten into you. Um, yeah. so, and it's a crucial part. It, it reinforces the Cameron esprit de corps. Um, you know, because in, you know, Dien Bien Phu and, uh, you know, kind of an interesting crossover was the fact that, you know, I did a, I, I did a t talk with, um, with Joe Kasabi on Lions Led by Donkeys um, about being in the Legion. And his grandfather had been at Dien Bien Phu. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that's, that was, I thought that was nuts, man. Like, <laughs> and, and survived it and survived the death march afterwards. Yeah. Because, you know, again, the Legion was, and, what I don't, what we didn't kind of point out when I was talking to Joe was, you know, how lucky his grandfather was because, you know, you had the Legion again, World War One kind of ranking, uh, ranking kind of casualties in Legion units were decimated. Um, the 13th DBLE who had fought at Bir Hakim, um, you know, they were wiped out completely and utterly to the man. The whole... Yeah battalion was destroyed um, and had to be rebuilt from scratch. So, you know, you had this and, you know, Dien uh, Bien Phu saw, you know, um, you had the rep who were there, the paratroopers who were there, but you also had guys who were, because the only way of getting, getting supplies and reinforcements in there were by air. Um, Yap's artillery cut it off, you know, destroyed the airfield. Um, and they ended up parachuting in and, you know, guys who were uh, volunteering, who were cooks back in Hanoi, were volunteering to jump, even though they'd never jumped before. And some of them, some of them had, they'd jump in, some of them, you know, kind of the, the flights were cancelled at the last minute. But, you know, you had, you had this going on. And it also started, um, you know, the, the numbers in the Legion, um, the, the nationalities in the Legion was after World War II the French, when they captured German troops, quite a lot of them, and the kind of lower 
kind of outside the Legion is that a lot of these guys were SS and they weren't. There was a tiny minority who were SS. Yeah, I was going to say the SS marked their people. Uh, yeah. they, tat they tattooed their people with blood type or the actual, the lightning S's. Yeah. And uh, I read that a lot, like a big job of Legion recruiters was to essentially recruit stripped down naked and look for scars. Oh, yeah, uh, it was. Where, yeah. Which, where which the, was a you know, sentence if they were yeah. caught with the SS. The friend, it was an automatically swinging out of a rope, swinging from a rope. Yeah. What French, if you were if you were SS and caught, um, because they wanted to extract extract revenge for you know several of the atrocities in France during the war, but the you know the the Germans ended up you know you had whole battalions almost who were made up of Germans, um, and you know so the. What you ended up with, because the Legion loves to sing, and each regiment, each platoon, each company has its own song, um, and it's only recently changed. Uh, we sang in German when we marched. Okay. Um, and it's it's only recently changed in that they translated the songs into French. Um, but <laughs> well, there's still German. There's there's still yeah. German army songs, um, and it's funny. You know, you you know, I end up watching you know a movie like Fury. Um, where you see German troops marching and singing, and I'm going, yeah, I marched that song too. <laughs> and, and you know, it, it's funny, you know, when you see some of this stuff, and you know, you see guys singing. Kind of, I mean, my company song um, was actually the. It was. It had to be translated into French because we were supposed to march in Paris for the 14th of July, and our company song was the. The marching song of the of the German paratroopers, the Faschingjäger. Um, but you know, you didn't really want to be singing in German walking down along the Champs Elysees. Yeah, I was going to say that's not know, that's not a good. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so you know, so you had that, and you you had the demographic of the Legion was massively German. Yeah. Um, after after Indochina, you know, after uh, Dien Bien Phu, because at Dien Bien Phu you had. You know, you had French regular units, you had the Legion, but you also had the, the Vietnamese 5th Parachute Regiment, um, which fought a massive fight there. You know, they, they suffered huge casualties. They fought, you know, practically fought to the last man. But when France left Vietnam, a lot of these, the, the Sankian Bauem, as they were called, a lot of these guys came with the, came with the French to France and ended up in the Legion because... You know, there were Vietnamese, there were a French military unit, but they weren't French. Yeah. So there was no place for them in France. So they ended up, you know, this is why you ended up with, you know, loads of Vietnamese guys in the Legion. Um, and it started a tradition with the Vietnamese in, in France, the Vietnamese community in France, because I served with Vietnamese guys whose, you know, whose grandfathers had fought in, in Dien Bien Phu. That's crazy. You know? I mean, and you got to think here that, that, you know, that, that makeup of the Legion, yeah. uh, you know, that offers you citizenship or, you know, you have the blood citizenship and, and yeah. the opportunity to gain French citizenship. Yeah. You know, you're going to have those expat communities probably all over France. Yeah, uh, you do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was talking to, I was talking to Joe about his grandfather and, you know, you have, um, you have a big Armenian community in Lyon, around Lyon in France, and there's quite a lot of Kasabians there, so, you know, he's... He's probably, probably got relatives right there. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, you, you go to other cities and you've got big 
Vietnamese communities, you've got, you know, you've, well, you've got big Algerian communities and Moroccan communities and because of the colonies, but, you know, you have, you have communities where they're there because of the military, because of, you know, their, their families enlisting in the Legion. And it's a way, I mean, even, you know, um, you have it these days, you've got uh, a lot of, you know, you've got some of the illegal immigrants who, you know, make the crossing out of, uh, out of Mali and Niger and in these conflict zones, make the crossing of the Sahara right across the Mediterranean and end up in France. And, you know, what they do is they join the Legion um, because, you know, they, they know about the French military from their own country, from yeah. seeing French troops in their own country. And they know that, well, I can join the Legion, I'll fight for France and I will gain citizenship and benefits and a pension as a, you know, kind of as a return. And, you know, this is why when I went to Somalia in the, uh, in the 90s, um, we weren't relying on having to find interpreters because we had Somali legionnaires. Um, okay. Yeah, and this is, this is something that kind of goes around in the Legion that where you go, you don't have to look for an interpreter because you've got guys from yeah. there already. So, you know, you had, you know, this is why, you know, you had, you had Vietnamese who came after the war and you had quite a lot of Vietnamese who fought in uh, kind of when, when France got kicked out of Indochina, the next step was kind of for the Legion was to return to Algeria. It's, it's homeland, it's home because they regarded Algeria yeah. as its home. So that was the, the next big colonial conflict for, for the Legion. Um, yeah, and before before we jump into that, you got—I mean, listeners have to understand—this was a long, drawn out, uh, oh, yeah. like yeah. extricating from the you know that that mindset that Algeria is a colony or a part of France, like you said. Yeah, you know, Algerians at this point were like, okay, we—I mean, the, a, a lot of the uh, uh, heavily populated areas like Algiers it, were, were francophone. Okay, you know, yeah. French is widely spoken. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was it was seen as French, but then you have every you had everything else outside of there where Algerians really just wanted the French gone, and you had a, a formation of the ALN, which was essentially yeah. the national liberation for Algeria. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and I mean, you know, a lot of these guys were um, a lot of leaders of the FLN and the the ALN. You know, they were educated in France. They'd been to university in France. They they had a high standard of education. Um, you know, they were, and a lot gets lumped on them as being, oh, well, you know, they came under the influence of leftist ideology and communist ideology. It was, you know, the independence for Algeria had nothing to do with kind of any left-wing ideology. They just wanted to be free. They just wanted to be self-governing. Um, they kind of had enough. Um, they'd seen the, the Vietnamese do it for themselves. Um, and they went, well, you know, now's our chance. Yeah. And you had you had Algerian regiments among the French army, and these combat veterans were returning from Indochina, returning to France, returning to North Africa, returning, and they went, well, you know, hang on, we've had kind of had enough as well of fighting France's wars for, and you know, whereas the Legion were. A legionnaire could end up with French citizenship. It was different for the colonial armies. It was different yeah. for the colonial regiments, like the Senegalese, the Algerians, the Moroccans, and stuff like that. They weren't entitled to the same things. Um, yeah, France, France, and the blood. UK. Yeah, France and the UK had that weird, uh, 
like you you're part of the overall you you're part of the metropole's military but guess yeah. what still not eligible under certain exactly. conditions yeah. yeah yeah and you know we're seeing it nowadays in in the uk with brexit that you've got fijian soldiers who have served as part of the british army and have lived in the uk for 30 years they're married with kids and stuff like that are being kicked out so you've got that you know they're being kicked out of kicked out of the uk um good god man that's a whole well, other france, that, france that's a whole other conversation length of kicking the algerian soldiers out of france but they still weren't entitled to the the same thing and they still weren't regarded kind of as the same even when they were walking down the street yeah um and it took up until only, only a couple of years ago uh for there to be full recognition of these colonial regiments the the um algerians the North Africans in particular, but also the Senegalese, the West African regiments, to be fully recognized in, you know, kind of by the French government for what they did, you know, fighting for France in World War One and World War Two. Um, there's, I'll look up the name for you and I'll post it on, on Twitter, but there's a, a fantastic movie that was made about the Algerian regiment, about Algeri Algerian soldiers in, a in the French army in in france after after dida um and you know really how they really slogged it out but yeah you know they never received the recognition um so you know so there was whole there was that and there was you know there was they were coming back from indochina um you had these core groups who were extremely experienced kind of in combat and they were coming back and going whoa right we've had enough now we want independence you had the you know the ALN and the FLN and you know you the start of the uh, of the Algerian War of Independence, which was extremely brutal. Yeah, um, yeah, there wasn't anything um, not that there's anything pretty about you know wars for independence, no, but Algeria was especially rough, especially brutal. Yeah. And you know, there's even up until a few years ago, uh, there still wasn't recognition. Uh, literally, a couple of years ago. There still wasn't recognition for the war crimes in Algeria. And, you know, I'm proud of having been in the Legion. I'm proud of the history of the Legion and stuff like that. We're probably one of the more unusual fighting forces in the world. But, you know, the Legion did commit atrocities in North yep. Africa, along with all the other French units. But, you know, the, the Legion could be as brutal as anybody else there. And, you know, you know there's... Uh, there's a lot that needs to be written about that, and there's there's a lot that needs to be recognized about that. Yeah, I a lot of you know I, I think we see it a little more now as we're seeing uh, actual historians that are digging more into that. Yeah, you know, and I think that's important. Like we we can't just sit here and say you know you know these you know these French uh, you know the French you know French soldiers just thought they were fighting for French ter you know territory and French pride and French you know no like they. Yeah were killing men who were not in the yeah. military, women and children, yeah. uh, to oh, further yeah. to further a political goal, which by yeah. definition is terrorism. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, I, that, that's. I mean, I think one of the uh, the film is on YouTube. It's um, the Battle for Algiers, but the book there's um, there's a great book actually by a French general, and it's called The Battle of the Casbah counterterrorism and torture where he you know this this was a general who commanded in algeria french general who commanded in algeria and he you know he wrote about the 
for want of a better word, the, the French coin strategy in, in Algeria, and which the French coin strategy in Algeria influenced a huge amount of other armies as to how they dealt with counterinsurgency. Um, right up until the you know the nineties and stuff like that. So, you know, there was it did have it did have a lot of lessons, um, a lot of the wrong lessons, but you know, it, it did influence the thinking of a lot of soldiers, a lot of you know, military commanders. But you know, he wrote he, he didn't just write about the the counterinsurgency strategy, he also wrote about the torture. Um, yeah. so you know, there's I've been lucky, um you know, as a as an ex legionnaire, I've actually worked in Algeria, um, and I've worked in parts of Algeria that a lot of guys don't, because the projects I was working on, I got into areas where you wouldn't normally see a lot of uh, a lot of foreigners, um, and it's been interesting because I've seen you know I've I've been to the the former headquarters of Legion in the city Belabez, um, I've been to other towns where there was Legion forts and stuff like that, and they're still there. And I've actually managed to walk around. I mean, one of the guys that I had, I was working with an Algerian, had fought, had been in the French army, deserted, um, managed to make his way back to, uh, he'd been in France when he deserted, made his way back to Algeria and fought the French in Algeria. And, you know, we were walking around the place and he was pointing out, you know, we, we ambushed the, the Legion Paris from here. And he's, he, knows full, he knew full well, I'm ex-Legion. Yeah, and, you know, he explained how you know the fighting that went on and stuff like that, and it was, it was, um, it was actually fantastic to see it from the other point of view, the other side. Um, you know, zero animosity and stuff like that between, be kind of between us, even though he knew my history. Um, but you know, it was um, you know seeing a very unique view of the war in Algeria. Um, yeah. Now, I think what we what we probably should get to, though, is why, you know, Algeria was a it was a rough spot uh, for yeah. the Legion. Uh, they felt like they were going to lose their home and they a few Legion, a few Legion subunits decided, hey, let's overthrow the Gaul. Or yeah. they were in well, on it. <laughs> well, yeah, because, you know, it it's a bit like, you know, Queen Victoria's mascot in the Crimea. Um Legionnaires kind of do what fucking legionnaires do, and yep. it's it it doesn't always end that good. Um, so yeah, I the, and it was the legion. The legion disagreed. It wasn't it nece- wasn't necessarily that it took the side of the the French colonists, the Pienoir, who were in Algeria, um, who'd been there at this point. They'd been there for centuries. They didn't even yeah. really speak a French. They spoke a a mixed French Arabic. Um, they were firmly implanted in the in the country, and they didn't want to leave. And they saw that they would leave it. They would. They were afraid they would lose everything. Um, yeah. The legion went kind of down the road of well. They've got a shared kind of goal, as in they want Algeria to stay a part of France. Uh, we're just pissed off because we'll probably get disbanded because they're going to take our home away from us. Um, so, you know, sitting around with, a, with you know, the Legion, Legion officers, but a few other French officers kind of said, well, the only way to achieve this is actually to stage a military coup, um, kill the goal, um, 
So I mean, they that, came up with a that's plan. pretty that's pretty ballsy, man. All right, oh, that, that's yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. ballsy. <laughs> so they they came up with a plan to to actually parachute on Paris, um, take Paris by by storm. Yeah, Paris, jump Paris, in, Paris, man. Take take Paris by storm. Um, I don't think there is an event in history anything like this. Um, but they were going to take Paris by storm. At the very last minute, the French Air Force kind of went, uh, no, actually, we're not on your side um, because this is going to be a disaster. Yeah. And they pulled out, but they didn't just pull out. They told everyone what was going on. So. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, leave, it, sent, sent leave it up to Paris, Navy. man. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Air Force. <laughs> So de Gaulle sent the French Navy to shell the, the Legion bases on the coast in Oran and, um, and near Algiers, which has sparked a continual animosity between the French Air Force and the French Navy and the Legion. Oh. Um, we kind of, even though it was an absolutely shit thing to do, right? Yeah. It's not something that should have, should have happened, but we refuse to let them forget the fact that one, the Air Force shit the bed and didn't do what they had promised to do. And the Navy shot our guys. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it, we, we, like, the Legion regularly gets picked to, um, to test the security at French air bases um, with the express order of don't break anything. Um, and I've seen guys try to take the cockpit, cockpit off a French fighter, off a fighter jet. <laughs> Uh, so I mean, there's that. I think I think you're right though. Like how you you see military led coups, right? You, yes. you see it all the time. Yeah. Um, you rarely see them in conjunction with uh, a non military affiliated unit. You don't see that very often. Yeah. Um, but then you don't see <laughs> you don't see a coup that has like 50 million moving parts, including a parachute drop into the capital. Yeah. Okay. Um, where if one person backs out, it scraps the entire yeah. thing. It, it's um, the the, um, the ambition behind this is mind boggling. Like who, like if I'm sitting around with my buddies, you know, we we could be just like, hey, what if we did this? And then you know, just the drunkest one will be like, well, it's going to fail because X, Y, and Z. Hmm, all right, fair enough. Like where was that guy in this meeting? That was like, yeah, that guy really wasn't there. Yeah, you know. <laughs> That guy was not there. He was not present. No, uh, he was, he was taking with piss his... at the time. Yep. Um, so, you know, no one was there to put their hand up and go, yeah, this is not going to work. Yeah. But again, I mean, you don't see that, but then you don't see it anywhere where that is run by, let's stage a military coup in a, in a country that we actually don't really belong to. Yeah. We're foreigners. We're not French, but we're going to stage a coup in France. Yeah, um, it, it's yeah. Yeah, you know, you said it best though. The Legion is a it, it's it's a very interesting uh, group of people. Uh, you know, like it's it, we'll, we'll hold that one off until we get to the end because I think that would that would feed right into the last one, right? Yeah. So after Algeria, uh, you know, I imagine you saw a a, a uh, that's downsizing of the. Oh yeah, you 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 had a purge really. You had the because the the coup was really led by the first parachute regiment. 
Um, so the first parachute regiment was disbanded. Um, some of the guys were allowed to stay and they were absorbed by the, the second parachute regiment. Um, a lot of them, like the officers were thrown in jail. Some of them were executed. Uh, some of them served long enough jail sentences. Um, other legionnaires were kicked out and, you know, shown the door. These guys ended up, I mean, a lot of these first rep guys who were, who were kicked out, um, they formed the ba- kind of the basis of the, the French mercenary units that ended up in the Congo kind of a year later in 1963 with, um, with Jean Schramm and, and a few more of these guys. You know, you had uh, Bob Denard and stuff like that. So yeah. these guys ended up being becoming what were known as les Afro, the horrible ones. Um, so this is kind of the start of the big mercenary era. era. Um, I mean, you had ex, ex-Foreign Legion mercenaries showing up working for the CIA in Central America, in South America, um, training, kind of working alongside kind of, you know, secret police units and, and stuff like this. So, you know, you had, they were mainly in, mainly in Africa, in French-speaking Africa, but you had them all over the place. There's, um, it's a difficult book to find now. And if you do find it, it's expensive because it's out of print. There's a book called The Last Adventure by um, Rob Steiner, um, who was an Austrian who joined the Legion because he discovered sex and he couldn't become a priest. Um, <laughs> so, so, wow, that, that's quite the uh, transition there. Yeah. Uh, you know? Um, <laughs> so he joined the Legion. He was in, uh, he was in the first... Uh, now, he wasn't disbanded. He was absorbed into the 2nd Parachute Regiment, but he left the Legion, and he ended up fighting, being one of the, the big mercenaries, big names in the mercenary world in Biafra, in Nigeria. Um, but kind of these guys kind of fell into two categories. You had the mercenary for profit, and Steiner saw himself as the, the ideolo- ideological mercenary. He was kind of, he would fight for these small independence groups who were, trying to break away from these, you know, these other, from bigger countries. So, you know, you had him, but, you know, it kept, it spawned a whole series of interesting characters kind of moving around the world, but it was a very quiet time for the Legion afterwards because they left, um, they left France or sorry, they left Algeria, but France banned them from ever, uh, banned them from having bases in France. So the entire legion ended up being based on Corsica. And it wasn't until 1983 that the French government allowed the legion to, some of the legion regiments to leave Corsica and establish bases in mainland France, with the exception of the second parachute regiment who were still on Corsica. Yeah, I was going to say, they're still there, right? (laughs) Yeah, and it's, it's still, I suppose... You know, you don't want, I mean, they form a main, a main unit in the, the French uh, rapid deployment forces. Um, you know, if shit goes off somewhere, the Legion goes. Yeah. The, the parachute regiment can be one of the first units in. But like, why, you know, you know, yeah, we'll keep one of our main units away from any real logistical, logistical links. 
So we have to get aircraft to them to fly them off an island to fly them somewhere in the world is not really the most sensible thing, but it just shows you how that memory runs deep, kind of yeah. against the paras against the paras. Yeah, and yeah, like you know, uh, that's a that's a good point. Like I didn't really think about it like that. I just figured, you know, uh, you've just got you've got a, an island where you could just drop guys as needed, you know, for training, you know, for training yeah. and all that. And it's you know it's mountainous, so you could use that to your advantage during training, yeah. you know. But you know, uh, you know, Parisians especially have a memory a mile long. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I can only imagine if you heard, even if this, you know, the first rep's no longer there. You know, but like, hey, yeah, but second a... rep and second rep. Well, you know, they're all the one. Yeah. Uh, you know, fuck them. They can yeah. stay on the island. <laughs> and it's and, you know, what Corsica is a is is a pain in the ass because, you know, you've got a ferry and a limited number of planes that get there. So getting on and off the island. I mean, I I was stationed. I, I joined the I enlisted um, when I left basic training. I was offered kind of my choice of regiments to go to. And I went to the 2nd Infantry Regiment, which was a French, a French mainland-based unit. Um, but, you know, I had a lot of buddies who were in the rep. Um, and I just really, because where if I got a weekend off, I could go to Paris for the weekend. Yeah. Those guys, they could go downtown for the weekend. <laughs> and that was it. And they couldn't even drink in all the bars because they weren't wanted there. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Corsicans don't want them there. The French want to keep them there. No one really else wants wants them around the place. So, you know, <laughs> they got the shit end of the stick. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, let's face it. They are paratroopers and you should keep them away exactly, from civilization yeah, anyway. The shit end of the stick. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had buddies that, that uh, jumped with them in Corsica. Yeah. And they were like, it was the worst drop zone I've ever seen. Uh, I didn't land on it. I actually landed on the roof of a building. And when I sat there, uh, the nice lady whose roof I was on, who spoke English, said, don't worry. They'll be along to get you eventually. I'll get you some oh. tea. And I was oh, like, yeah. what? He's like, yeah, man, I sat there for eight hours because it's just something that happens. And everybody in Corsica, they may not like it, but they're yeah. like, well, it's going to happen. So, yeah, you know. I, I, did, I did exercises there with... Um with the rep and uh, with the U.S. Marines. And at one point, there was um, one, of the, one of the rep guys that did a jump, and he ended up on the, the roof of a restaurant. But in full view of the French general who was commanding the exercise and these visiting, you know, visiting U.S. officers, visiting German officers and the whole lot. And I got told after by this general's driver who was from the Legion, he turned around to a captain and went, he better be in jail for the embarrassment he's just caused. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, it was like fuck. <laughs> oh man, you know what? I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um. All right, so we got the rep there, but what led you to join the Legion? Like, what what made you want to do it? Well, um, my family come from a big, big history of, um, you know, you go back kind of World War One or even pre-World War One, you had Cosgroves who were in the Royal Munster Fusiliers, you know, the, the English regiments, English, British, Irish regiments. Yeah. And, you know, I've got uh, great, great uncles who, uh, great, great grandfathers who served at the Somme. Um, 
you know, they served four years on the Western Front and, you know, they survived and stuff like that. So you had that. And then my grandfather on my mum's side, um, he was an officer in the uh, in the Free State Army after independence. But you had the Cosgroves who, when they came, you know, when they came back from World War One, um, not unlike the Algerians returning from Indochina, kind of went, you know, fuck this. Uh, we want to govern ourselves. It's about time. Yeah. And, you know, they, you know, you had the, the North Clare IRA, the county I live in, County Clare, well, the North Clare IRA Brigade was commanded by one of my great, great uncles. Um, so you had that. And then uh, I had a couple of uncles who were in the Irish Army in the Congo uh, at the time of Jadoville and stuff like that. Um, and of course, I've got my brother who retired there. A couple of years ago, after forty-three years service, um, you know, had uh, you know, he uh, did a, a couple of tours in Lebanon with the UN. So you've got the Irish Army. The Irish Army have a massive history, going back basically to the formation of the UN in serving as peacekeeping troops. Yeah, I, the, world. the IDF has like there. If you have peacekeeping to be done, it seems like the IDF is there. Uh, they've got yeah. an element there and it and it can be anything from you know monitoring the uh helping monitoring the the elections in namibia to you know i i actually there was um i bumped into a guy by accident in dublin um when there was a bit of an altercation between some legionnaires on leave and some french air force guys that we met there and had to point out that they shit the bed and didn't drop us on paris <laughs> um, and a couple of these other guys who were who were in the bar um, kind of went, "Who are you guys?" And well, well, we're you know we're all legionnaires on leave, and they went, "Oh, hang on, we were with you in in Cambodia with the UN mission in Cambodia." And of course, next thing was a couple of our guys had been in Cambodia, and it started the whole thing. And um, so it's you know the Irish get kind of everywhere. I mean, yeah. Um, I've met, I, I know legionnaires who were like my corporals when I enlisted in 1988. They had enlisted in 1982. They'd served in Beirut with the multinational force alongside the Americans and the Italians. And they had met Irish uniform peacekeepers there at the same time. So, you know, we have a big history of it, but my family has always been kind of involved in the, you know, the, the British regiments, independence right up until kind of the modern day um but in 1988 because there was ma the massive unemployment in europe and ireland um thanks thatcher irish, thank you the irish military had put uh yeah and the us the irish military had put a cap on recruitment yeah um and i got out of high school in 1987 and kind of went yeah i just do not want to go to college i do not want to go to school again uh, i've had enough um, I want to join the army and I couldn't so I kind of gave in and I went to went to college for a year and while I was in college um, one of the guys that was in college and I played rugby with his older brother had joined the rep um, and he was home on leave so I got talking to him and I I read up I mean it, it kind of started in 1982 when I was on vacation in the UK with uh, with my sister uh, watching TV, and you had Simon Murray had produced a documentary on the Legion, and that was the, the I was only twelve, but I suppose it kind of planted the seed. 
and then after that, you know, I'd read up on the Legion, you know, I'd read Steiner's book, and you know, I was getting that romanticism about yeah. what the Legion was about. And then I got, I met this guy, and I said, "Well, what what's the story?" And he said, "Right, okay, I'll give you the real story. You enlist. This is what you're going to get." And he taught me exactly what the you know what the game was. Um, and I took a job, a summer job, in a carnival. Um, to make the money, it kind of went. Yeah, well, you know, I I could have, I could have stayed working with the carnival. You know, the, you know, the the girls were nice and the money was good. But you know, I wanted to I wanted to join the legion, so I took what money I had. Um, told my my mother that I was going back to college, and uh, <laughs> and jumped on a ferry that brought me to France. Oh hitchhiked, man, hitchhiked to Paris. Um, Tried to get directions to the recruitment station in Paris and couldn't find it because my shit French, shit schoolboy French didn't translate to oh yeah, French, you know to proper French, uh, especially Parisian French. Um, so I went to the only other base that I well that I had money to get myself to because I couldn't I didn't have enough money to get to Marseille, so I went to Lille in the north of France. Uh, where I knew there was a recruitment station, and I found that and enlisted. Um, so that was 1988. Um, finished basic in beginning of 89, went to my regiment, um, and I got there, and it was literally, you get off a bus, you're put on a parade ground, the regimental commander comes down, gives you a speech, and then you're kind of, your name is read out, and you're kind of pointed towards a company, an infantry company that you're going to join. And uh, just before they started that, they said, you know, is there any volunteers for the um, reconnaissance and support weapons company? Um, so I stuck up my hand. Didn't know what it was, but I stuck up my hand. Of course. Yeah. As you will. Yeah. <laughs> as you would. And I ended up in an um, anti-tank reconnaissance platoon, um, which it was fantastic because we did a lot of stuff that other guys didn't do. You know, we learned a lot of, a lot of stuff that other guys didn't learn how to do. Um, but I was the youngest. They, what they were really looking for were new guys to come in because everyone else had kind of two, two and a half year service. Yeah. So for the first six, six, eight months, I got a load of shit. Um, I got all the, you know, cleaning the toilets, kind oh, of yeah. and all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's funny, like when I, when I've, I've met a couple of people, <clears throat> I met, I met a guy there a while back who said that he joined the Legion and he'd stayed for six months and then he left. And I said, you deserted. And he went, no, no, no. I took the option because the Legion allows you to kind of go stick your hand up and go, I don't want to stay or yeah. during your basic training, the four months of basic training. And it also gives you that option for the first two months after you arrive in the, arrive in the regiment. So he did it six months and he and he left, but he was kind of still calling himself a legionnaire, and he was going, "Oh, I'm disappointed because you know, you know, we we weren't doing soldier stuff." And I went, "You don't even fucking know what soldier stuff is." Yeah, I was gonna say you you dipped out like two months into your hitch, man. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, you're, and the the whole thing, unlike other armies, um, when you get to basic training. They've got to teach you a whole new language. Yeah. Because you've got guys, and, and 
it's not, I mean, it's a whole new language. It's not just spoken, but even written. <clears throat> because you've got Eastern Europeans who are used to writing in Cyrillic. You know, you've got far in, you know, you've got the Indians, the Nepalese, the Japanese, and way back, there was, there is actually a, quite a sizable number of Japanese legionnaires. Um, you know, they don't even have the same alphabet and they have to learn all this. Yeah. Um, you know, they have to learn a whole, whole new language. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a more protracted kind of um, experience in a way. Yeah. Um, and, and again, this isn't, you know, you don't have, you know, like military beat reporters going to legionnaire basic training to write about it like we do in no. the States or in the UK or, yeah. you know, because that, it, PR is all like, especially with the, with the, uh, you know, US and the, in the British army, like PR yeah. stooge, you know, you see the posters and the television commercials and, you know, every, like that's, that's a big yeah. part of it. So you have somebody constantly writing about it. Like yeah. you don't have writers, uh, yeah. you know, well, buddy well, enough. Even down to, on, the, <laughs> on the PR side of things, the Legion doesn't have a PAO. Yeah. Which is well, standard in the U.S. Army now. Yeah. And, and, the, and the and British forces and just about every other ar army. They're not, <laughs> they're not actually allowed to speak for themselves. And in fact, you're, um, you're told, don't ever talk to a journalist. <laughs> well, it's I mean, like, you're makes, gonna fuck it up. Don't ever it, talk to one. Yeah, it makes sense. Especially, like, say, like you know, um, I imagine you probably served with some some guys that didn't pick up French as well as they should have. Like they they got oh, enough yeah. class, you know. Yeah. That's the last guy you want out there talking to like a French journalist, you know. Like, uh, you know, instead of saying one thing, it comes out like, yeah, you know, I did something else, you know. Like that's the last oh, yeah. thing you want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, so I mean, that I mean, makes sense. Well, I'll give you an example. We had a guy who, uh, in the first Gulf War, we had um, some visiting journalists. It was French, French and British journalists arrived at our forward base. And one of them wandered off and managed to catch one of the French journalists, wandered off and managed to catch one of the legionnaires who was fucking off behind a tent and asked him what he thought of being in Saudi Arabia and the, you know, the kind of build up to fighting Saddam Hussein. And he started into a rant <laughs> about it all being about oil and corrupt politicians and the new world order and the whole <laughs> And for every bit of downtime for the six months we were out there, he was digging holes. It was like, <laughs> what the fuck did you think you were doing opening your mouth? Um, God, you know, and it, it's, it's kind of, yeah, well, you know, they're in the Legion for a reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were a couple times where, like, I had a, a microphone shoved in my face when I was deployed, and I knew better that, that I, the only thing was, the 82nd is here to help. You know, that was all yeah. that would come out of my mouth. Yeah. Uh, I might have been thinking 10 million other things, but the 82nd, we're here to help, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's just like, shut up. Yeah, don't, don't. <laughs> you talk about that in the tent with us. You don't talk it outside of the tent. Yeah, with, yeah, just... Just don't yeah. talk to anybody else. Yeah. So what, what, other, what other places did you go? Uh, you so know, you... Uh, I finished basic training. Um, and, you know, we were kind of waiting. We, uh, we didn't have, um, because there's certain, certain tours that are scheduled, such as kind of doing a four-month tour of duty in, um, in French Guyane to support the regiment that are based there because they do the security uh, duties for the the French missile launch at the um, 
the European Space Agency. Um, you know, you've got regular kind of tours, kind of French Guyane, Djibouti, and a couple of other places. Um, so we were kind of going, well, you know, we're in the rotation, but we don't know when we're going to get overseas. But at the same time, you're part of the French Rapid Deployment Force. Um, so, you know, next thing there was one of the companies was due to was due to go to Chad, and they said, well, we're going to stick a platoon with that infantry company. Um, so I was getting ready to go to Chad, and a couple of weeks before we were due to go, you know, we got the word that um, Sudanese or Chadian rebels based out of Sudan had crossed had crossed the border and were threatening the capital and they'd been pushed back and kind of, you know, you get said, right, we're going early. So we deployed kind of a couple of weeks early. But, it, you know, first, your, <clears throat> your first deployment overseas, um, you're kind of going, you're excited, but also shit in the bed. Kind yeah. of going, what's going to go on? Um, you know, you're relying on the older guys kind of say, well, you know, it's all right. This is what's going to happen. Um, and we were hearing the stories coming back of the, the combat and stuff like this. So, you know, we we're waiting to kind of get there and see where we're going to get into the action straight away. And the first thing that greeted us as we came off the plane were literally uh, wounded, dead and wounded from the Chadian side, which they'd stacked on pallets and they were unloading from uh, a Transal, which is like the small Hercules. <laughs> Jesus but they Christ. were unloading it by pallet. <clears throat> and they weren't separating the dead and the wounded. Oh, so they're so, just all like... Oh, they were all just pile them on there and get them off the plane. So, you know, this was kind of going, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is, re this is the real deal. So, you know, you we had that and I think we were... They gave us kind of a couple of days to acclimatize, uh, to, you know, the temperatures in, in the country. Um and then shipped us out to the Sudanese border, and we were we started patrols along the Sudanese border, trying to, you know, the, with the job of, as the reconnaissance element of, finding these rebel these uh, rebel units, and then calling in airstrikes on, uh, or calling in helicopters on them. So you know, we we worked kind of we did four months of kind of doing that, four and a half months of doing that, um, and then I came back from came back from Chad, and literally had a got. You know, you're given a month's leave when you come back from a four-month tour of duty, and literally came back in a couple of days after the after being off for a month, and um, was told that you know there was uh, a civil unrest had broken out in Gabon in West Africa, and France had decided to evacuate all French nationals from the country, and when they when they do that, they send in a military mission. So he ended up kind of in in Gabon for kind of ten days, two weeks supervising the extraction of French nationals. So, you know, you get off a plane and you start zooming around the place on a Jeep, trying to find where, you know, the, the lit, you know, the list of houses as to where these people are. Yeah. And, you know, loading them up and getting back to an airbase. Um, so that kind of went on. And then, you know, I did my corporal's course, did a couple of, uh, specialist courses, uh, France, uh, the, the French military run, for the regular units, like the regular power units and the Legion, they run what they call commando courses, which are really kind of specialist um, small unit tactics. Um, it's kind of guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Um, so they run these courses, and you know, so you're you'll normally you'll, you'll definitely get one 
during your time. But you know, if you're lucky, kind of because it is interesting to do that, do this stuff, and you know, abseiling down cliffs at night, and shit like that. Yeah, it's a buzz. I mean, let's let's face it. When you're younger, that's all cool. Now I'm just like, man, that that like the harness sounds horribly uncomfortable. I really don't want to deal with being on belay right now. You know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you get older, you're going no. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I'd rather be home in bed. <laughs> but you know, so I I ended up doing, did my corporate course, did one of those courses, and they said, um, I came off the cor- off the commando course, and they said, well, you know, right, you've got a choice. Uh, you can go to you know, you can go to Djibouti for two years, or you can go onto your sergeant's course. And I said, well, not interested in my sergeant's course right now, because you know, I've got three and a half years service and yeah. you know, I've been on a shitload of courses for the last kind of year and a half. Um, I want to kind of take a break, so I'll go to Djibouti. And Djibouti at the time was considered a bit of an ice, what we used to refer to as an ice cream mission. It was sit around, eat ice cream, get a tan and wear, and wear Ray-Bans and <laughs> get overseas pay, which was, you know, if you were a corporal, it was close to triple what you were being paid back yeah. in France. So it was like, rack up that cash, get a 10. Um, and just as I got to Djibouti, um, a kind of a, I wouldn't say a civil war, but borderline civil war broke out between the government and the Afar tribe. Um, and French, the, the French managed to mediate it quite quickly. Um, the fact that they were there supporting the government the ISA government, but they were also, you know, moving weapons and medical yeah. supplies to the rebels at the same time, because the government, even though they had an agreement with them, they didn't really like the French, whereas the Afar did. So yeah, you know, we were, but you know, they mediated, and part of the mediation was that France would provide a, a ceasefire observation uh, mission. So we were it. Um, so you'd end up doing two weeks in barracks, two weeks in the field on ceasefire observation. But, you know, that was my first year. And then I remember coming in, uh, we came back in and, you know, we, as a as a unit, we were pretty rowdy. So, and we had a, a great platoon commander, an NCO. Um, so there was some issues downtown one night, um, <laughs> just before Christmas. And uh, there was a misunderstanding where I ended up in jail, in Legion jail, not, not any other yeah. jail. But uh, I remember the military police coming in at late at night, you know, kind of my second night in there and went, right, all of you get back to your units. We're going like, what's going on? And we got back and they said, right, start packing your bags because we're going to Somalia. Um, we're going like, oh, okay. Well, I'm out of jail anyway. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, I really don't want to be there anymore. I'd rather be, you know. Yeah, uh, I'd rather be in Somalia. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, that's the funny thing. Um, you always hear about jail with a lot of legionnaires when they're in their writing or when they're talking. And it's like, dude, that doesn't mean they're in the pen. It means that they got picked up by some MPs. Yeah. And, and crucially the Legion has its own MPs. Um, but in Djibouti, you had the French regular, you had the French forces, military police who were French Marine commandos who are slightly akin to, they do pretty much the same job as the seals. Okay. And but because they're part of the navy, we hate them. Yeah, of course, <laughs> naturally, naturally. And the 
the Legion has a rule in Djibouti that if you get arrested, whether you've done nothing or you were being, you know, you've done something, if you got arrested by these guys, you were going to jail for a week anyway. Might as well so, make it worth it. <laughs> yeah, so it was a case of, well, if they're arresting me, well, you know, we're going to throw it down and I'm going, yeah. I'm going to jail for a reason. Yep. Yep. <laughs> So, I, God, dude, you know, it, it doesn't matter the formation or the flag you, you yeah. serve under. It's the same shit in every military, man. It's, oh, yeah. so, it, it, it's just funny sometimes, man. Um, so you go, you go to Somalia. So I go mean, to Somalia, go to with the United Nations Task Force, which was the, the very, very first mission, landed in Mogadishu, um, went there by boat, which was different. Um, landed with the landed alongside the Marines, Second uh, Marine Division. Um, starting started conducting joint operations with them around Mogadishu, um, and then we were told, right, you're going to push out. You're going to push into the interior of Somalia. Um, started working with the Green Berets um, for some of those missions, um, and then we were told, right, well, we're going to start conducting. Um, anti-bandit operations, which was because you had food convoys that were coming across the border from Ethiopia, you had refugee con convoys that were going the other way, and they were they were being hit by, you know, some of these clan militias um, driving around the place and technicals. So we were told, right, you're going to establish patrol bases and patrol out of there, um, and we ended up in um, what was actually a an old Italian. Um, border post uh, from the 1930s and that was our patrol base in the middle of nowhere in Somalia um, and started patrolling out of there and working with um, with, with French and US um, gunships to guide them on to um, guide them in after um, bandit columns um, so we were doing that and then just towards the end uh, we were coming back off that mission and I got retasked along with the rest of my, my um, platoon to provide security for U.S. Army heavy engineers. So they were uh, road building in, in Somalia. So yeah. I got to work with those guys, which was an unusual experience being that close going out on the road. And I think it was more of an unusual experience for them um, because we were a bit of a shock to the system in the way we did things. Um, <laughs> Including well, coming very close to shooting one of their lieutenants. I um, would not be surprised at that. Engineer lieutenants can either be like super cool or just like <laughs> total fucking like magoos, you know? Oh, just, well, well, what what shock does was that we and I was telling a telling um, my girlfriend the other day. Um, they would give us in the morning. They'd hand us an MRE. Like we'd get a hot breakfast. Because it's the U.S. Army provides yeah. you with a hot breakfast, and then they handed us an MRE, but one bag. We were going, okay, this is our meal for the day, and we're going. They're going, no, 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 this is a meal. When? No wonder you're all fat fuckers. <laughs> um, and then they would deliver a hot meal to the field every evening. We're kind of going, this is nuts. <laughs> Dude, there there were times where like I would be on base like on our little fire base or checkpoint or whatever, and we yeah. would get hot meals, man. Like, I just, to me, it's just shocking because, oh. like, I remember my last time in Afghanistan, dude, 
we didn't even have tents. We would have 12 people under a camo net uh, to sleep for like three hours while the sun was yeah. down, you know? Yeah. Like, I just, I hear stuff like that, and I'm like, where was this army when I was in? Oh, you know, like, yeah, it's I just, mean, and kind of, I suppose, uniquely enough, um, part, well, you know, when I got out of Legion, I started working in the security uh, business. You know, I'd worked alongside journalists, and I went to Iraq and Afghanistan with journalists, and I got to see kind of more than, because it was a one-man one man job, I got to see more than what some of the, you know, the other security contractors who were doing force protection and convoy yeah. escort and this kind of stuff. So, you know, I got out and saw, you know, how some of the U.S. units were, you know, living living behind rocks that <laughs> they put up themselves. Um, with uh, stolen planks of wood and shit like that. And just kind of yeah. Going, yeah. This, this bring back, brings back memories. Yeah, I mean, uh, my favorite was putting up the initial HESCO walls uh, that we had to fill up with the E-tools. Uh, we yeah. got like, three HESCO done in four days, and then they <laughs> finally got like a, a bucket loader to come out and just like... Yeah. And I'm just like, We're, what? We could have just stayed on the VIX, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Circled the wagons yeah. until they got here, but, oh. you know, it's, yeah, it's the U.S. Yeah, Army. It's, it's, the, it's... it's the U.S. Army. What can I, you know, I... I I, I loved, uh, I think you probably agree with me here, I loved the guys I served with, yeah. but I detested the higher echelon commanders. I was just like, who let the good idea ferry out, and why did you listen? <laughs> you know, like, this is ridiculous. Well, um, I mean, th this was the blessing of the Legion in that, like, we had French officers, but, you know, you had the, quite a lot of platoons were commanded by senior NCOs who really didn't have a lot of time to fuck around you know yeah. they, they went it was like you know downtime is downtime we're not going to do stupid shit just to do stupid shit so because i went back like i went for a second tour i came back after the first tour in somalia came back to djibouti and then uh went back to somalia um again but as a un peacekeeper um and you know we had a a green you know green green uh lieutenant um who got assigned this opportune commander and he was the good idea fairy i mean oh. but <laughs> crucially crucially we had a couple of senior ncos who just went shut the fuck up yeah you're here to get experience go sit back in your vehicle um, yeah i mean yeah, I, which was great i will give the u.s army that i like the buddy system we have uh, I think having a, a really senior platoon sergeant to go with your brand new PL, that's a great idea. Yeah. It's just, it loses its effectiveness as it goes up the chain because then you end up with two people who think the same exact way. Yeah. And it's like, oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but what, you know, I think this is the important thing. What makes the Legion the Legion? Like, why is, why is it such a, you know, like you said, there's this mystique. <laughs> There's this reputation There's, it has, you know, like, but overall, what does it, what does it mean to, to just, I guess, pop culture, so to speak? Like, why is it, why is it somebody who's not even associated with, mil with the military? How do they know about the Legion? Like, why? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bizarre one. Um, you know, you've, I suppose, you've got guys kind of, you've got the movies that pop up, pop up every time, every few, every, you know, it starts off with, Bogest back in the 40s or 50s or whenever that movie was made yeah uh, with, with Gary Cooper 
Um, and then, you know, you come along to the 90s and you had Jean-Claude Van Damme who makes a movie about the Legion. Well, funny enough, with Jean-Claude Van Damme, he does actually have a Legion connection because the guy who taught him how to fight was a Legionnaire. Okay. Um, so he, he does have a, a Legion connection. But you've got that movie, Legionnaire. Yeah. And then you get stuff popping up here and there about about the Legion. Um, and it's just bizarre. It, it, it drives a mistake. And, you know, the books are... If you want a book about the Legion, you really have to go looking for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I mentioned there, there's there's quite a number of Japanese legionnaires, um, and that actually stems from a Japanese guy who joined the legion in 1925, did five years, went back to Japan, wrote a book, and it's it spawned kind of a cult fiction yeah. around this, and it's you know he wrote this book as kind of you know the legionnaires they're really the the modern day samurai and you know this is kind of picked up by these young japanese kids who read the book and you know every summer you'll have an influx of japanese guys some of them stay the ones who stay tend to be batshit crazy um, <laughs> like really fucking weird guys um great guys but really nuts yeah um but again you know what always kind of mystified me was, you know, you can have an Iranian in the Legion. You know, I've met Iranians, I've met Iraqis. I've, you know, nowadays you've got Nepalese guys who were, you know, and there's a certain amount of that has to do with kind of inter-army kind of connections, you know, the NATO exercises, Afghanistan, where, you know, the French served alongside the American troops. Um, you know, you've got, but, it doesn't explain all the connections. It, it, I don't think it ever will kind of explain all the stuff. I mean, you've got Finns who join because, you know, one of the one of the Finnish commanders in the Winter War in 1941 had been in the Legion. Yeah. And, you know, that's brought that kind of element of mystique to Finland, and he's still a cult hero in Finnish history. But it doesn't explain why, you know, you've got a, a Kazakh or a Kyrgyz joins the legion how did he even hear about it i don't know yeah <laughs> i mean and you know and, and you said it yourself like it's the legion has what two or three recruiting posts inside france it's oh, up yeah. to, it's up to you the individual to get there though yeah. they're not they're not going out they're not sending they, you pamphlets there's no recruitment outside i mean you can understand countries where the french had a presence like yeah. in chad or you know in mali nowadays niger or kind of you know places like that you can understand that or the Vietnamese guys who've joined because their grandfathers had been Vietnamese paratroopers with the French and went to France afterwards. But like, it mystifies me when, you know, you've got the, you know, the likes of the Iranian guy or the Nepalese guy or, you know, some of these other guys who end up, you know, joining the Legion. It's like, how did you even hear about it? Yeah. I mean, did you arrive in France? and see, you know, walk past one of the recruiting stations and see a poster on the wall. Well, you know, if they're Eastern European, they couldn't even read it. Yeah, um, I, that's, the, that's the thing. Like, when I got out of the, the U.S. Army, I was thinking about it. I was debating it. So I went to the actual website. Um, they only, like, it looks like a Geocities website from, like, 1997. Um, <laughs> you know, it gives you the ability to have it translated because, you know, it's initially presented yeah. in French. 
Um, but you could tell they just put the text into a French to English translator. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah because, yeah. you know, a lot of the English yeah. is bad. And the only thing that makes any sense when it's translated is, is the pay scale. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I was just, I was thinking about it. I'm like, dude, you are older than dirt. Don't even. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was 35 when I got out, you know. Yeah, and I, like, well, I, was like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I was 25 when I left and... When I got to 30, I thought about going back because I still had the option to kind of re-enlist and within a certain period get back up to my previous rank because of having been there already. I just went, no, yeah. no, no, no. The aches and pains are kicking in. This is just, yeah, forget about yeah. it. Especially with me because I would be one of those idiots that would want to go to, to the rep. And uh, I could already see on my first jump hitting a roof uh, popping yeah. my canopy releases and just laying there like, nope, this is not for me. Uh, yeah, slide, sliding across the DZ at, yeah. at Fort Charlie. Yeah. The barbed wire that they conveniently put around the DZ. No, yeah. not a good idea. Yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm good. I'll just read about it and talk about it with you. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's a smarter plan for, you know, where oh, I'm at. Way smarter. Yeah. Uh, just, just go drinking with ex-legionnaires. It's, it's way better. Yeah. Uh, so let's, we're going to wrap it up here, man. Yeah. Uh, first, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for the interview. Uh, and uh, anything you want to plug, man, uh, and share with everybody? <clears throat> well, plugging, I suppose. Um, uh, I got into long distance hiking, kind of, well, got, got back into comfortable long distance hiking. Um, not the long distance hiking in bad boots and shit packs. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. kind of proper long distance hiking a few years ago. And I tied it in with raising funds for charity. So in 2017, I did the Arctic Circle Trail in Greenland, uh, did a section of the GR10 in France in 2018. And then in 2019, I started to do, I started uh, and had to drop out because of injuries to my feet. Um, a 600-kilometer hike across from north to south across Iceland. And I had a plan which COVID conveniently scuppered uh, to go back there kind of in 2020. So all going to plan in June or July of 2021, I'll be heading back up to Iceland. And I, even though I do this kind of for my own enjoyment, uh, I actually raised funds for a charity, uh, Irish Dogs for the Disabled. And they provide assistance dogs to disabled people, nine out of 10, which are kids, um, which who these dogs do everything from helping someone in, in a wheel, permanently in a wheelchair, have some measure of independent living to helping a, a kid who would normally end up in a wheelchair to give them the ability to be able to walk. So, um, I ray, I'll be raising funds for them again. Um, if anyone wants to follow me on Twitter and get updates on that, um, I'm at Dermot, D-E-R-M-O-T-N Cosgrove, C-O-S-G-R-O-V-E on Twitter. Um, I do occasionally upset people and get suspended. <laughs> um, he's been known to get thrown in twitter jail everybody yes <laughs> yeah yeah I, I kind of went for a record and got it twice in one month last time out but um you know i i try and keep it entertaining 
Yes. And, and I do post photographs of birds and of Irish scenery. So yes. if anyone wants to follow me on there and get updates and if they want to donate, I'll have links on there for donations to the charity. So I suppose if that's my pluggable, that's, you know, that's the, that's the one I'll do. Yeah. And he's a great Twitter follow and it's a great uh, charity. I gave last time when you started, I'll be given again, dude, trust me. I think that's a great one, especially Thanks, when bro. it helps kids, you know, um, but you can find me on Twitter at bearded cynic four, seven, three. I have yet to be suspended for whatever reason. Um, although I've recently started for the calling of guillotine building politicians front yards here in the United States. <laughs> so I imagine it's only a matter of time. Uh, you can also find the podcast Twitter at YDK history pod. Uh, you know, we broke 153 listens. Uh, so thank you, everybody who's listening. Uh, I'm going to hopefully have this up tomorrow. And I hope you all have a great new year. Oh, oh and if hey. I can, if Go I ahead, can man. plug, if I can do one more plug. Absolutely. People should get out and follow Lions Led by Donkeys. Another great history podcast. Follow Joe Kasabian um, and Dr. Rob Thompson. Yes. Because I'm really waiting. But you were previous guests. And I'm really waiting for that book to come out because that'd yep. be an epic one. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. Um, and, my, and Dr. Thompson and I are, have already spoken about having him come on, and we're just going to get into it about the NBN foo. So, uh, oh, brilliant. Yes, yeah. yeah. So we he's he's going to be my hopefully the first returning guest. But uh, yeah, everybody, if, if, if you want me on to sing Legion songs during that, oh, dude, that would be great. You could just be in the back in the background, <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right, everybody, I hope you enjoy it and have a great day.